Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hello, welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Garrison. Uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of an update on some of the things that have been happening in Atlanta, Georgia the past few weeks in relation to the Stop Cop City movement. Uh, with me uh, today to help help uh, go through the many, many happenings of the past of the past past few weeks is uh, Matt from the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Hello. Hello, my friend. Good to see you. Yes. Last time last time we talked on the show it was during our uh our very, very critically acclaimed comedy episode. So nice I, to... The comedy episode was great. Highlight. Highlighted the season. I, I'm glad you approve as someone who was on the episode. <laughs> I might have been like the target audience for that, but... <laughs> yeah, there was like there was, there was like four jokes that only like three people get. <laughs> but that's all right. Um, so this is going to be a bit of a bit of a looser episode because... People are are preparing for the week of action. Uh, there's a lot of lot of things in play. It's kind of a lot of stuff still up in the air. So I don't I don't have time to put something super super uh, super scripted together. But many things have happened that are worth talking about, especially before the week of action. I guess uh, would the first thing on the docket be to kind of go over the stuff regarding the extra funding that that uh, the city seems to be. Uh, be giving towards the cop city project even beyond like the 33 million dollars 
Um, that was the that was the target of the city council vote a few a few days ago. But there's a whole bunch of extra extra money floating around, as discovered by you guys at the Atlanta Community Press Collective, and then uh, who had who had their journalism pretty much stolen by every other outlet. <laughs> They put our name. They put our name in there, and you know, there you, you get go. paid in, in you get you get paid in the spotlight, right? That's how that works. That's how yeah. I pay my rent. I, I I'm I'm only paying you an exposure for these episododes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is which isn't true, FYI. But anyway. Um. So yeah. Okay. So going back to 2021, this conversation started uh, a couple months after the lease legislation was signed. Uh, back then, it was a conversation about like a $55 million funding package between uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation and uh, Chief Operating Officer at the time, John Keane. So that conversation has morphed over the last two years, but the, the, the key part of it was the extra money was going to come from this lease back agreement. And so originally, it was going to be a 20-year, $1 million a year. We found out that that is actually a... 30-year, $1.2 million a year payment, so $36 million going to the Atlanta Police Foundation. And part of what they were, what they had talked about using it for in 2021 was to pay down this $20 million loan, construction loan that the Atlanta Police Foundation was planning on taking out to build the facility. So when they were talking about the like $60 million philanthropic donation, they really, they meant Four or twenty of that was going to come from from a loan that the city was going to pay back. So immediately, like these numbers were skewed from the get go and have, have been uh, misleading for for the last year and a half. And I mean, part of the original plans for the Cop City project, and people are unaware, included what like thirty million dollars of public funds being contributed, and the other sixty million for the first phase was supposed to come via like private funds with 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 the Atlanta Police Foundation doing like fundraising with via all their big corporate backers. Um, and then what's happened in the past few months of them trying to trying to d down downscale some of like the more expensive parts of the plan um and like cutting cutting some of the fat in terms of like the the stables aren't going to be the, the same same spot that they that they wanted there to be stables um and other 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 small kind of money saving cuts and then all this increase in uh the amount of the project that's just being funded by taxpayers it seems like the APS been not as successful in being able to fund their project uh, privately as they initially hoped. That's at least my read from what's from what's going on here. So maybe not uh, from what they originally hoped, but from what they originally showed us or told us that they were going to do. According to um, the chief financial operator of the city of Atlanta, Mohamed Bala, he said that the Atlanta Police Foundation has raised $33.4 million in, in philanthropic funds for this, uh, which their goal apparently this whole time was only $30 million in, in actual funds from corporations and, and philanthropic organizations. Including They've, the streamer Destiny, who donated, I think, $20,000 to the Atlanta Police Foundation. <laughs> which yeah, is, out of spite. Uh, which is a reference to all of you internet cells out there. 
<laughs> who are also Very cursed, who, who are also cursed with this knowledge. Yeah. So the other interesting thing is is originally ten million dollars was supposed to come in new market tax credits, and we're getting like really into the weeds yeah, this about is, finances. And I'm sorry. As, as soon as you said new market tax credits, part of my brain just like shut off. Uh, but continue, continue, continue. Like 30,000 foot overview. Um, that money is supposed to go to like revitalizing uh, impoverished or like underserved communities. It's supposed to go to like businesses that want to like open grocery stores and food deserts and things like that. So they, it's not $10 million anymore. Now it's $5 million, but it's still going to build a police training center in uh, you know, a predominantly black neighborhood that, um, is under the uh, average monthly income. So things got twisted here. That This doesn't seem like a, a revitalization project that, that is supposed to improve the lives of the neighbors around it. So yeah, it's it seems like the, the, the amount of funding that they actually are going to end up receiving from public funds is ballooned to be much bigger than they initially promised and the project was initially sold on, which... It's just another, another, another thing in the long line of uh, of uh, of APF moments. So this entire time, um, the deputy chief operating officer for the city of Atlanta, Lashandra Burks, she has been playing quarterback for the finance conversation, and she was part of the finance conversation like the way back in twenty. So somebody, she's she's in the mayor's cabinet, and like. He's privy to these conversations. So the entire time, like, this is happening, Andre Dickens is still, like, out in the press repeating this $30 million number. Like, tells it to Rose Scott, who's uh, basically our, our NPR, like, person here. And he tells it to the AJC, the paper of record, and says that it's going to be $30 million. And if it goes over, it's going to come out of the Atlanta Police Foundation. And then, of course... You know, his his cabinet is having conversations about way more money this entire. Well, do do you know who else cares a lot about money? The products and services. The, the products and services. Buy the products and services. The products and services really really do want your money. And now also the the as Sophie is poking at me to tell you, the Apple Premium subscription option also cares a lot about your money. Uh, and Android version uh, launching shortly. Anyway, here's some ads. Okay, we are back. Uh, we're gonna talk about another, another, another good. Uh, uh, st- staying on the topic of uh, of of stealing your money and using it for purposes that is probably not very good. Let's talk about um, <laughs> let's talk about the the uh, the two Atlanta City Council meetings that happened. One was during late May, right? That was the first one with public comment. That was like people were being public comment for like seven hours. That that lasted quite a while. It was it was a pretty pretty long day, and then on the then during the meeting on June fifth was even longer. Like how how late were you at City Council so, on the June on June fifth? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on May fifteenth, the first City Council meeting, the one where where we kind of like we're like, hey, this this is going to come up for vote. So and then organizers, you know, got everyone to show up. Yeah. So uh, about seven and a half hours of public comment that night. City council meeting ended at, I think, like 11 o'clock. Um, and then uh, there was a meeting, the, the finance executive committee meeting kind of in between that had about two hours of public comment, which for a subcommittee meeting is a lot. Uh, and then all of that, 
every like record was blown out of the water on June fifth, uh, where we had just just over fourteen hours of public comment. That includes like breaks for disruption and like a ten minute break that the city council took. Uh, and then a lot of arguing between Doug Shipman, the city council president, trying to calm people down. But, you know, overall, it was 14 and a half hours of just public comment, which is the largest uh, public com- in-person public comment session that is, is in, in modern history. Yeah. And it was basically unanimous. There were there were four speakers who got up pretty early uh, who were in favor of the uh, the training center. And then everyone else was anti-cop city. Yeah, did um, I remember? Remember seeing some things about like uh, APF police departments trying to like trying to push people through to give public comment. Yeah, so there was a rumor going around that that the Atlanta Police Foundation and uh, the mayor's office were trying to get fifty people. There was like this number; it was like fifty people. Um, I I never saw anything to back that up, but okay. It did seem like the four people who, who showed up were kind of coordinated and, you know, like one of them brought their kids, which the the stop cop city side does the same thing. So it, sure. there did seem to be some like intentional parallels. But what what was not paralleled was just the sheer number of uh, people on the different sides. It was I don't think anybody who's in favor of the facility is like going to wait 14 hours to talk for two minutes. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. And, you know, the Atlanta Police Foundation hasn't shown up to defend the facility in since 2021. And like, they're the most invested. Yeah, it is. It is striking the amount of which their work on it is just so much like backdoor lobbying. Um, and they have really have never had to defend the project like publicly and openly. Um, it's, it's all it's all just these 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 back. Backer meetings between city council members, between uh, people, people in the mayor's office, between people in the police department. Yeah, the Atlanta Police Foundation lobbyist was actually running around uh, City Hall on June 5th. Yeah, not surprising. So I feel like most if people are online, they probably heard the result of the vote after 14 hours of public comment, which was uh, almost like unanimously uh, against the facility. Uh, what, what was it? Uh, four to eleven. Yeah, four votes against, eleven in favor. So they they passed the funding package, allocating at least the thirty three million plus the future loans. Uh, the lease back agreement. Yeah. Yes. The the and it's thirty one million plus the lease back. Okay. We're so, not going to get more deep than that. Okay. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it was it, it was like. What what time was that? Was like four a.m. Five thirty. Jesus. I, a, so I got there. There was a young Democrats like thing um, against. There was a press conference with the young Democrats of Georgia coming out against Cop City at eight a.m. So I was there at seven thirty. I left City Hall at six thirty. That was the wildest day. So so after probably the longest City Council meeting day in quite a while. Um, they the, in history, in history, that, for sure, in history, they single day they voted to approve the funding, which I I mean I don't know I I, I wasn't I was not surprised um I, I wasn't surprised but I was disappointed um as as a as a as a parent would say 
I want to point out a couple of things that that they did um, in preparation. Uh, so I think city council was prepared for like an action or a hecklers veto, and they had two moves to kind of neutralize that. Um, the first is they moved the actual vote on this to the very last thing. So the vote on the funding came at the end of the meeting. So if you know there was an attempt to stop the vote itself, it wouldn't have affected any city business before that. And then they also prepared a committee room so that if you know things got rowdy or there was some sort of direct action in the chambers itself, they were just gonna take the council and physically move them to a different room and let people continue to, to demonstrate in city council. Uh, so I think they were, they, you know, they made some wise moves on their end uh, to prepare. Yeah, and they loaded the chamber with the cops before the vote. I know back like during the afternoon, they were setting up kind of barricades and staging around City Hall. Um, I mean, it just seemed to be a lot of like erratic, erratic stuff happening around. Did not. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I was unsure what was going to happen myself. I, I, I didn't know how how it would play out, what what tactics people would try to employ. It seemed like people mostly tried to kind of like go by the book there and see how far that would get. And then if the result was like what we got, then other other things will happen in, in these next few months, especially with a week of action coming up. Um, so yeah, uh, do you think people on the like, what did people on the ground think? Like, did did they think that that the vote would go through, or did they think that the vote would be stopped? I'm not. I I, I am I am kind of. It's it's been it's been it's been a little little over a month since I've been in in, in Atlanta, and I think that the mood on the ground fluctuates so quickly often. Yeah, and I, I think it's you know kind of dependent upon which segment of the movement um, we're talking about. There's there's obviously whole sections of the movement that that are uh, opposed to electoralism. Sure, they still showed up. Like they still you know came and, and gave public comment, and I, I feel like they they didn't expect that this would go any other way. Uh, there's more like electorally plugged in groups that they're you know. There was a slim chance of this thing getting sent back to committee, and that was the closest that uh, this had to, to not going through. Uh, city council, you know, the kind of the whip count uh, that that we learned was if it if it came to a straight up or down vote, it was always going to go through. It's never the numbers to do anything else. Yeah. So there was some lobbying happening behind the scenes to uh, with student organizers and, and various. Other organizers who who are more prone to, to having these these discussions, uh, especially with elected officials. So there was lobbying for this to get sent back to community uh, to committee where it would be held, and hopefully delay the actual funding and mess up APF's funding mechanism. But uh, that didn't happen. So there were people I, who were hopeful. Like even I was, you know. I said that this was the closest electorally that we'd ever come to to stopping it. I, you know, just kind of knowing how the whip count changed over the course of like 48 hours, it got close and then then it got taken away. Uh, Andre yeah. Dickens called city council members into his office Monday morning and started peeling them off. Yeah. Well, I mean, and 
this was never going to be the end of the movement by any means. There was already plans for things afterwards, like the week of action at the end of June here. Um, and I guess we can we can talk about how uh, some of the ways the movement might continue going forward after after these 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 messages from our our lovely sponsors who endorse everything we're saying. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. I know you agree with me on this. Um, so we're back. Uh, really life like ghost. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, most people don't. So, as if you're part of like, only on the gold though. Yeah, exactly. If, if you're part of the ghost hunting community, there, there, there is there is a few types of ghosts who actually really like um, bargaining material possessions. They're, if they're able to give away enough of their stuff, their soul is able to actually transcend to the next level and go to a more safe, like a, a more restful place. So th these are people who've been too materially driven on Earth. Their soul gets trapped in that. So they have to they have to make sure that they get rid of their gold uh, in order to them to go to their next place, whether that's like that's like a, a safer version of limbo, paradise, heaven, hell, whatever. Um, so, yeah, Can't wait for you to move here so I can learn more about this. I, I was just I making all of that up on the fly. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about what's going to happen next. Um, obviously, there was a week of action planned for June 24th to July 1st, uh, which is going to be a very hot week. Um, so there's that. Uh, to my understanding, uh, Entrenchment, Creek, Entrenchment Creek Park is still closed, correct? So Entrenchment Creek Park is still closed. There is, um, there is a motion or there, there's some legislation in the DeKalb County Board of Commissioners uh, that is supposed to come up again on Tuesday. Uh, the, the CEO's office asked for like 30 days to finish cleaning up the park. So the 30 days will expire it's monday and then there's a board of commissioners meeting on tuesday um so, where so, after that they hopefully the park is open but we'll see so it may or may not be open uh that is still, that, know, is still park. that is still to be determined um i've heard there will be another music festival of some sort not many details as of time of recording um uh, so we we knew that was going to happen. I, I talked about this during during the uh, the week of action retrospective episode, which honestly is still pretty applicable here in terms of the amount of destruction that's happened in the forest and how people are thinking about ways to continue resistance in the face of not I, again. I, I I'm against the binary of like victory and defeat. I think that's not a useful way of looking at this situation at this point. But it you're 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 they're kind of looking down like the barrel of something now. Uh, being like a lot of the land's been cleared, a lot of the trees have been cut. Pre-construction is is ongoing. Construction is scheduled for this summer. They just got approved for all the city funding, right? Like things are in motion. Um, so the ways that people are going to choose to resist now might be different than the ways that they chose to resist like a year or two ago because it's just a very different, si very different situation. There's a different risk level. Uh, there's a lot of more surveillance around the forest. There's a lot more surveillance uh, outside the forest. Um, it's just it's just a very different scenario. So I think if uh, the retrospective episode still contains a few things about how how resistance might 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 take forms uh, during these next few weeks. Um, but there's this, this this other thing that came up after the city council meeting, which is uh, the referendum that some people are planning. Uh, do you want to go over a little bit of those details? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people I've or I've seen kind of on Twitter where a lot of people are like, oh, the referendum is just coming out in rise to the city council vote. And like, no, this has been in the works for a little while. It, okay. To my knowledge, it dates, I mean, I know it dates back to before even the, the funding question was was in place. So uh, it's been in the works for a minute. 
uh, and then they they decided to hold off until after the city. So we're probably going to do it regardless of the city council. But uh, the referendum there there is there's a spaceport that was supposed to be built in, in South Georgia, and basically this one woman like started a referendum question and got this spaceport canceled. Of course, we're talking very different like municipalities. That was a much smaller one. Uh, she only had to collect 1,400 signatures or something like that. But there's a referendum question that is uh, in front of the uh, municipal clerk to kind of sign off on it and make sure that it is uh, properly worded and all these things, like just an administrative issue at this point. Um, once the clerk signs off on it, then uh, these organizers have 60 days to collect 75,000 The number they actually need is just over 70,000, but they're collecting a little extra because these signatures will be challenged and you know things like that with a vote. Um, if they're successful in doing so, it goes to city council, who again, as an administrative position, has to pull the signatures and make sure everything you know is official. And then uh, if once that passes, then it goes automatically on the November 7th. Uh, and, and then it will be a straight up or down question of do we cancel this 2021 lease to the Atlanta police? But there are, there are a couple where this comes in, I think, most interestingly, is uh, the organizers of this believe that it, they can get an injunction uh, to stop construction. Both now, uh, once the, the referendum campaign kicks off, and then if they collect the 70,000 signatures again until November 7th. So this could significantly delay um, the Atlanta Police Foundation's ability to continue destruction on the land. And like right now, we are in the mass grading phase of this project, which is the most environmentally damaging part of it. Now we're, we're screwing with the contours of the land. Um, so you know, they're going to have to prove that they're serious uh, about the referendum and, and a judge is going to have to believe that the referendum is at least likely to succeed uh, in order to get this injunction. But it does look like they should be able to prove at least that they are serious and there is a good chance of this succeeding. How soon do people have to start like doing stuff for that? So the referendum, once the clerk signs off on the paperwork and that that um, it, the clerk has seven days to validate. And then once that happens, you have the 60 days. So we're in this kind of interim period uh, where they can't start collecting signatures. Uh, but as soon as the clerk signs off on it, they will start collecting signatures. So they, they anticipate the clerk to like kind of try to hold off as long as possible. So they're looking at Wednesday, uh, which I'm going to look at my calendar because I know exactly what to be that. So they're looking at Wednesday, uh, the 14th, um, as the kickoff for the signature collecting uh, campaign. So for more information about the referendum campaign or to you know, find ways to volunteer, or if you are an Atlanta resident who was registered to vote in the last election, uh, you can sign the referendum to copcityvote.com. That's copcityvote.com. Cool. Uh, let's see. There's one other thing that happened of note the past few weeks. 
Uh, one thing, one little thing. There's one other thing that happened of note the past few weeks, and that's when uh, police raided the home of three people. Um, and this 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 home kind of serves as like a legal defense hub in Atlanta, um, and arrested three people associated with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, and are charging them with a variety of of uh, of quote unquote charity fraud and like uh, and, and other other quite nonsensical financial crimes, as the bail hearing judge <laughs> admitted himself. Um, so. Do you want to do you want to go over some of some of those details? Because I mean, this is something that was honestly people have been expecting this to happen. Like the, the Atlanta Salt Solidarity Fund themselves has said, "Hey, we will probably be the target of something like this in the future." Um, during during other hearings, uh, uh, the prosecutors have have talked about how they're investigating the Solidarity Fund as a part of this like conspiracy they're trying to to, to weave. Um, so it's definitely something that's been on on people's minds of of, of this type of legal this type of like state repression targeting all of like the bail funds and like legal support structures that have been set up. Um, so yeah, this this happened uh, like late late May, I believe. Uh, May thirty first. May th- yeah, last so day of May. May thirty first. Uh, they were still asleep in their beds. Uh, they got a so SWAT broke down their door. You know, I'm sure everyone's seen the video. It's- broke down their door, armored vehicle, and pulled them all out of their beds in their pajamas and took them to jail in their pajamas. Um, like just, you know, utterly insane for a bail fund or a nonprofit to, to have this go down. But yeah, they had been prepared for this uh, for quite some time. Marlon, uh, one of the organizers, had sent ACPP, uh, you know, a, a statement um, in preparation for this. And, you know, uh, you saw how quickly they transitioned the actual like running of the bail from the Atlanta Solidarity Fund to the National Bail Network, but happened seamlessly that day. So they were prepared. Um, and then, you know, someone who was talking to Marlon uh, while he was in jail said Marlon was pretty chill about the whole thing, which if you've ever interacted or seen Marlon, uh, that is, that's, that's pretty apt to describe him. But the the actual charges are are insane. Uh, you know, the the charity fraud part of it. Um, they're they're saying things like buying a cell phone uh, for for the bail fund is charity fraud, or reimbursing yourself for gas is charity fraud, or buying a COVID test is charity fraud. Like all Which these is, things that that are just like overhead. Yeah, very 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 standard. Like overhead costs for running an organization of this scale um yeah and as is this was all on the website when people doted anyway to talk about the various uses that these funds were going to have all the, the charges are extremely fl- flimsy uh there was a, a bail hearing a few 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 days later which i i watched the whole thing and um the judge there did not think the charges had much uh much merit uh which is the first time really during any kind of bail hearing associated with stop custody stuff where the judge was like, okay, so this just seems very clearly fake. <laughs> um, and, and, and told the prosecution that they'll have to put, put a much, much stronger, stronger case together if they want this to go forward at, 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 at any, at any further stage. So all three got out on bail. 
it's it's pretty scary though. I mean, like it, it's it's it fucking sucks. During the bail hearing, uh, the uh, I, th- I believe I believe it was it was it was the assistant attorney general um, who was there, uh, F- Fowler, I believe. John Fowler. Yep. Um, he was talking about how police were going through the trash of Solidarity Fund, how uh, they're monitoring uh, phone calls, uh, uh, other other communications. So just another n- another good reason to have a have a paper shredder and to have uh, to have a burn pile in your backyard. <laughs> um because yeah they're 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 good they're gonna go through your your trash if they want to find things out about you um they 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 stole a a journal from somebody is they they were someone's someone's personal journal uh was was taken and so yeah a lot of a lot of kind of very very standard like very standard of of this type of like shady investigation police stuff um, which is just it's always good to have a reminder for people about what what the police are willing to do. Um, but still, even even with all that, it seems like they were not able to get much at all because the most they could put together is, oh, you 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 use these funds in a way that you explicitly said that you could be used on your website, which is not probably not going to be a crime. Um, so. Not compelling long term, but certainly a pretty large inconvenience in the short term, and still a very like chilling like display of police repression, saying that we'll 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 make your life incredibly difficult um, if if we don't like you. But you know, and as has happened every time, there's been like this massive display of police repression. It utterly backfired, right? Like we national media is now just harping on the fact that these charges are overblown and they're attacking bail funds, which is inconceivable to, let's say, like the liberal or the liberal left wing of things. And so you, you, you've blown this issue into another sphere of awareness. You know, you've got Chris Hayes now on MSNBC doing an entire segment on, on Top City, which is not something, you know, we had before, even uh, the domestic terrorism charges. And I think this was just tactically a terrible decision by the attorney general's office to go through with this because the PR side of it is a nightmare for them. and rightfully so. Like this is an insane escalation. Is the bail fund still uh, being operated by the national bail organization at, at this point? Yes. Uh, so the bail funds is still being uh, run out of the national, um, network at this point in time so secure.actblue.com slash donate slash atlanta solidarity uh will get you a donate page continue to support bail in it you know in atlanta which again we've got a week of action coming up bail funds are highly probable in terms of being used yeah i mean as as they were used to bail out the, the three people who are the bail who are part of the bail fund organizers because I, th- I think they all got a fifteen thousand dollars bail which is a, a re- relatively low amount in terms of what we've seen in relation to this movement and i was looking through the december uh warrants and and bail hearings a minute ago for for another story and like then there were like ten thousand dollars <laughs> the cost has ballooned dramatically in the last so to go back down to fifteen thousand dollars is fail is terrible and awful, but that seems way more in line with expectations. Yeah. Well, so that is that is just a small glimpse at the many things that have been happening the past month. 
things do not seem to be slowing down. Things just seem to be changing in ways that makes uh, makes everything certainly certainly uh, uh, tricky and not very not very clear. But that's kind of the way that these things go. Um, people are still going to be showing up. There's the week of action happening on uh, starting on the twenty fourth. So that's. That's going to be this month, uh, so it's going to be a f- interesting lead up to July 1st. Uh, yeah, the movement continues. Uh, where can where can people uh, find your work, Matt? Uh, yeah, you can follow ACPC uh, at Atlanta underscore press on Twitter. You can follow me at Matt ACPC on Twitter. And our website is atlpresscollective.com, I assume. Yeah, I said that. Oh, did I cut out? You did cut out. I could not hear it at all. I said I heard oh, AT, I heard ATL Press Collective. Yeah, just you know, ATL Press Collective dot uh, com dot com. Fantastic. Yeah, you can. Uh, I'll I'll put a link for the for the new for the new Solidarity Fund. Uh, secure dot dot com slash donate slash Alana Solidarity because that is a long thing to type out. So I'll put a link for that in the description for the new for the new bail fund link. Um. And uh, yeah, you can you can uh, if you want to keep updated on plans for the week of action, um, I suppose you can look at uh, Stop Cop City on Instagram and uh, the Defend the Line of Forest account on Twitter, um, along with the many, many websites <laughs> that that exist at this point. Uh, but yeah, so that's going to be happening later. I, I don't know what will happen because I because I don't know. <laughs> Because I really going to have another fun week because I really have no idea what's going to happen because what happened in the last one was also quite uh, quite surprising. Um, So who who knows? Who knows what will what will what will go down? But uh, thank you, Matt, for joining me to give me uh, give me and the listeners a bit of an update on the again, many, many things that have been happening in Atlanta. Uh, I'll see you all on the other side. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And welcome to a very special joint episode of two shows that you hopefully love. One, The House of Pod. I'm Kave. I'm the host of that show. And it could happen here with my good friend, James Stout. James, hi. Hi, Kave. I'm very excited about this. This is a rare privilege. Yeah, I'm very excited too. We'll get straight to it. Um, just a quick reminder, if you're not following uh, one of these shows and you're following the other, yeah, follow both. Why not? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, leave a nice review if you uh, like the shows uh, either way. Um, but we're really excited. So let's we'll get straight to the episode. How's that sound? Yep, let's go. week i say this is a special episode and i'm usually lying 99 of the time it's not special but this week is very special it's, it's special because i've never done this before i'm very excited it's a topic i really have wanted to cover for a while but i'm going to be covering the topic with with a good friend of mine who has an excellent show and we're doing a joint show release thing and i've never done it it's like a marvel team up and i'm very excited for it <laughs> James Stout. James, I'm going to introduce you first. Journalist, podcaster, host of It Could Happen Here, which if you're listening to this on It Could Happen Here, you already knew that. James, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I don't watch many superhero movies, so I'm now concerned as to which Marvel uh, hero or villain I would be. But um, well, I was thinking more of the comics, but if I, have okay, to, yep. if I have to pin you to a character, it's Moon Knight. I think that's clear. Okay, it's gone straight past me, buddy, but uh, I'm sure. I, I hope that was... Yeah, Take okay. my word for it. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. James, can you tell us a little bit about what we're covering today? Let's let's talk to our people about what and then we'll introduce our guests, but let's tell yep. people kind of what we're trying to cover today. Yeah, of course. So we're talking about like healthcare in an indigenous context and how we can both learn from and stand in solidarity with in indigenous communities when it comes to healthcare, I guess. Excellent. And to help us with that, we have two guests. We have a medical student at a little school called Harvard. Um, I think it's a liberal arts school out in the east somewhere, <laughs> named Victor yeah. Lopez Carmen. He was the uh, prior elected co-chair of the United Nations Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. He is a member of the Crow Creek Sioux Tribe and also from the Yaki Tribe. Is that correct, Victor? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Welcome to the shows. Thank you so much. I'm honestly props to right, pronouncing all that right. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. No, your stuff I'm going to get right. Our next guest, whose name is Molly, I'm going to probably destroy her name because that those are the names I have a hard time with. Dr. Molly <laughs> Hallweaver, is that correct? Correct. 
ER doctor at UC Davis, one of my favorite hospitals in the world. Is that also correct? That is correct. I work at UC Davis. So I guess maybe uh, we should start like, um, if, if we want to start out by explaining maybe how healthcare, like what things that when we look at healthcare in indigenous context, what things we're we looking at that differentiate it from healthcare in other contexts, right? What, what would be the areas that both of you guys think that folks who aren't familiar with this, uh, because sadly, I think a lot of the United States, they either don't think they know indigenous people or, or maybe they really don't. Um, like, and we can explain that lots of indigenous people, most indigenous people live off res too. I think that would be very valuable, but what, what sort of topics would we be looking at when we're looking at healthcare from an indigenous perspective? I think like when you look at indigenous peoples in the US, you think of uh, our our traditional health system as well. Like that was what we always had. That was what uh, we've had for thousands of years and the efforts to maintain the traditional health, traditional healing practices. And then you look at the Western health system that the different systems we have access to today, including the Indian Health Service, which is unique to us, uh, tribal clinics, tribal operated clinics, and hospitals, everyday hospitals that anyone else uses. Because like you said, uh, the majority of Native Americans today in the U.S. live in cities or urban contexts. Molly, let me uh, ask you, because people may be wondering, uh, how did you become involved with delivery of healthcare to uh, the Native American population? Yeah, thanks. I um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to chat with you all. Um, I kind of had a unique opportunity. I've always been interested in um, Indian Health Service as like a healthcare delivery system and Indigenous um, peoples. And when I was a I started fellowship. I did a global health fellowship and I started in 2020. So it was, you know, not a great year to be a global health fellow um, <laughs> for many reasons. And so I had very, you know, obviously we were on lockdown and work was hard and stressful as an ER doc. Um, and so we were trying to be creative in, you know, how we can uh, do do this global health fellowship. And so I got in touch with a um, awesome physician uh, Dom Maggio, who is the ED director at White River, which is a Apache nation in Arizona. It's like three hours east of Phoenix. So he went to high, he was a Highland alum, a Highland DM alum, which is in Oakland, um, and now works full time at White River. Anyways, got connected with him and everything that was going on during the pandemic, because as I'm sure you guys are all aware, and probably a lot of our listeners that the Navajo and Apache, um, tribes were had much higher rates of of COVID and of severe COVID. And so I went as first for kind of public health outreach. So I went and did some contact tracing and helped do they did a really cool program of outreach in the community to, to go and check on the locals and we would go and check pulse ox so we'd see how high their oxygen saturation was and see how people were doing to try to catch disease early. So that's how I kind of got into doing it. And then um, I loved it there and wanted to keep working. And so I continued to moonlight, which means I worked kind of as a locums. Um, I don't know if I need to explain that for medical jargon, cave, but, uh, I worked, you know, every one to two months I would, uh, fly to Arizona and work on the res for a week. Very, very cool. So Victor, get, getting back a little bit 
to where Native Americans are getting their health care. Um, what is what is your interest once you're done? I mean, when you graduate from medical, where are you? What year are you right now? I'm a fourth year, so I'm in my last oh my, year. Oh my oh, wow. god, good right. for you, buddy. How how you liking it? Uh, I'm liking it less. <laughs> than, um, <laughs> you like fourth year less? No, I'm not like like I like medicine. I still yeah. maintain, but medical school, like I'm I'm ready to be done with school. <laughs> you got senioritis? Is that what you mean? Pretty much, yeah. Fair enough. So you're a rising fourth year, or have you already matched? Uh, no, I'm a I'm a rising fourth year. I'm applying to residency now. So, so so talk to us about where what you would like to where you'd like to go and what kind of medicine you'd like to practice. Honestly, anywhere. Um, that will take me but uh yeah I, I really i want to go into pediatrics always wanted to help uh and take care of native kids and back in the community for sure i want to go back and be a community member again i've been gone for so long i feel like i've been only only able to go back for like you know breaks and things like that and it's it's uh it hasn't been enough for me as an indigenous person. So I'm ready to go back, be a doctor, be part of the community, um, be there for ceremonies, be there to treat patients. That's my ideal. I think one thing that's really interesting, especially, and like we have this chance to talk to you, which we which we often don't have, is you mentioned like balancing like Western medical technology with indigenous medical technologies, right? And um, I'm really interested in in hearing how you would approach that for folks who aren't familiar or for folks who don't have uh, the knowledge of indigenous medical technologies that you might or you maybe have people who you go to for that yeah yeah well uh i think it's important to just already start the conversation that so much indigenous medical technology has already been uh appropriated by western medicine as Western medicine, aspirin, for instance, uh, many traditional healing practices that were and are still find themselves seeping into the field of psychiatry or around parenting, mental health, uh, the way that, uh, for instance, that indigenous peoples, I think there's a there's a growing uh, understanding in the medical field about planetary health and the impacts of climate change on health. And a lot of that uh has already been said and and fought for by indigenous peoples for a very long time and so there's already a lot of uh of stuff there that we're working with and i think it's important to give indigenous peoples their flowers but yeah that i think when it comes to integrating on the clinical level uh it's going to differ from community to community you might know but uh in the Pascoyaki tribe the uh the health division employs a team of traditional healers that come up, I think, monthly from Sonora, Mexico, from the villages. And Yaqui patients can elect to see the traditional healers with or without a Western-trained physician. Uh, and they there's a whole room where they have all these herbs and plants that Yaqui people have been using for thousands of years. And I think that that's very beautiful. Uh, one reason we've been able to do that is because our tribe elected to uh, run their own health division rather than having the Indian health service run it for them. We had the, the capability to do that at the time. Not all tribes do have the capability yet. 
we had it. And I think it's been beneficial for us because it's given us more freedom to to bridge Western and traditional medicine in a way that works for us. The the yucky system is a really great one. Like an um it, like people probably people won't be familiar with it. I'm guessing most people listening won't be familiar with it, but it's allowed the tribe to do all kinds of cool things. Like in um I've been involved in a diabetes prevention cycling program there for bit, 10 years, something like that. Long, long time. Um, but there are things that that can be done because of that block grant or running their own system as opposed to having IHS run the system. Could you like because Molly, I think you're more familiar with like an IHS clinic model, right? Would one of you want to explain the difference between the two of those for people who aren't familiar? IHS versus the tribe, the Pasquayaki tribe run their own system. I think they get a block grant. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Victor. They get a block grant from IHS okay. and then they spend that as they see fit. Yeah, I can speak to the IHS side, but um, for me, this and Victor, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it for me it was easy to. It's kind of similar to the VA for just for medical doctors to understand in that it's a. A set of money that the government sets aside for a certain population and veterans for the VA and IHS for um, natives. And, but there's obviously disparity between even those two, like per capita spending is way higher in the VA than it is um, on IHS. But it's a, yeah, Western system. um, And all of the staff on, the hospital, like the reservation hospital or the Indian hospital are all employees of IHS. So they're actually kind of like federal employees. Um, And we can kind of get into the weeds of it later, but there's, you know, a lot of turnover because it's uh, a, sometimes it's hard places to live. And so, and they're young, they kind of recruit young doctors and there's a lot of turnover for the, um, for the primary care doctors. And then in the ER where I work, there's very few board certified ER doctors. So it's staffed by non um non-em certified docs that sounds right to me um the only other thing i would add is that the indian health service uh it's it's predicated on what's called the federal trust responsibility that's built over you know decades of supreme court precedents smaller court precedents uh over the years that i think a lot of them were based in treaties made with indigenous peoples and basically this means that the government because of the harm, the oppression, the colonization that has been uh, dealt upon indigenous peoples across the United States, there's a, there's a trust responsibility for the federal government to sort of to do something about the lingering impacts. They have a responsibility to provide health services to indigenous peoples in the U.S. That was also in many of the treaties that were made with indigenous nations. And I think it does go over people's heads sometimes that uh, that this is not a favor. This is not a gift. It's a responsibility mm-hmm. based on centuries of oppression. And that that responsibility is not fully being met right now because the Indian Health Service is severely underfunded. Uh, the way that the, the funds are appropriated is unique to government health care programs, the way the veterans, for instance, um, Veterans Affairs is appropriated is much more effective than the way Indian Health Service is appropriated uh, at the federal level. It might be worth explaining here just briefly that uh, not all tribes are federally recognized, right? And not all Indigenous people are part of federally recognized tribes. And how would that impact their access to healthcare? Yeah, well, 
You know, federal recognition isn't perfect. It's a it's a really arduous process. And not all tribes are federally recognized. For those tribes who aren't, they don't have access to those services, uh, like the Indian Health Service or the Bureau of Indian Education, for instance, and many other federal grants that uh, Indigenous peoples and Indigenous nations can apply for or, autom- or just automatically get. For instance, during COVID-19, there were specific uh, funding allocated for tribal nations. Those tribal nations who are not federally recognized, they wouldn't have had a- access to them. Let me uh, shift gears a little bit here and get to a question that is, I think, going to be very difficult to answer. And it's one of those impossible questions because there's so many parts to it, I'm sure, and it varies so much. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the major health issues that you guys feel are facing Native Americans right now and, and whether or not if they are at all different from the rest of the U.S. population. And then we could talk about what barriers there are to care in that regards. But um, we'll start with with you, Molly. Can, can you tell us from your experience working there, what are the major health issues that you feel may or may not be the same as the general population? Yeah, I think... Um... At the end of the day, it is, it's very similar. You're seeing the same, the same disease processes that you're seeing in the general population. Um, but you're seeing uh, everything's a little bit more severe, I would say. Like there's more, um, there's higher rates of the chronic disorders like diabetes and hypertension. And it's kind of more severe long-term effects of the diabetes and hypertension and at younger ages. I think that was kind of what more was most striking to me. You're seeing um, the long-term, the bad effects, the long-term bad effects at younger ages. You're seeing alcohol use disorder is a problem everywhere in the United States, but on tribes, alcohol use disorder is much higher. Um, and again, like I, I was, it was shock. It was honestly shocking to see, um, 30-year-olds who had end-stage liver disease from alcohol use disorder. And I saw on some of the sickest people I've seen have been um, from my from my time there. So everything just is, you know, a little bit harder. And the reasons for that, as we can talk about, are like totally multifactorial, but are in line with poverty. Funding is a huge, like funding and poverty go hand in hand, education, um, and just the fact that, yeah, they've been oppressed for centuries. Um, but yeah, I think it's at the end of the day, it was the same. I was seeing the same things that I would see at UC Davis, uh, but I was seeing it on a more extreme basis, I would say. Victor? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I think uh, it's important to note, to sort of say that these problems exist all across the U.S. because there can be stereotypes um, associated yep. with health concerns like that, that that are attributed to the way that we live or our culture or just inherent to who we are. Like there's this prevailing, I think, notion that I don't know what came first, but I think in the medical field, I, I still hear about it like in class sometimes. They'll say like Native Americans uh, have the highest rates of diabetes or heart disease, but they won't say why. And it makes people think that, oh, like, are they just not catching on? Like, are, are they just living badly? And when you don't say why, it kind of, I think it, it, it creates a lot of ignorance and a lot of room for interpretation. Uh, so I think it's really important to talk about those background reasons. For instance, with diabetes, I think 
uh, a lot on a lot of reservations, there's no access to one traditional foods, which have been, you know, through policy eradicated through government policies over over the, the decades and centuries and no access to healthy foods. These are food deserts. And at the same time, uh, like Dr. Hall Weaver mentioned, there's poverty. So if you're trying to get healthy food, you don't have number one, it's not on the reservation. It, you might not even be able to afford it if you can get, get off the reservation. Not a lot of people have, you know, not everyone has a car or the ability to to mobilize, you know, hour and a half to the health food store. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the that's just one example of like some of the systemic reasons why somebody uh, could get diabetes quite early. And there's also a lot of lingering trauma and mental health impacts that I think play into the high rates of alcoholism. Uh, a lot of, you know, in, in policy, there, there was there were some early efforts to try to, uh, I think, to try to limit alcohol on reservations that we still see today. On some reservations, alcohol is entirely illegal on the reservation, but you'll see you'll still see uh, businesses right on the border of the reservation just uh, camp themselves there right on the border, knowing that these that the population is vulnerable, maybe not knowing that it's because of the historical trauma and things. Like, but but there's there's something there, you know, so there's still an aspect of being targeted there by something that that, you know, the community is is highly vulnerable to still to this day. It's a really interesting point that you, you bring up uh, because I remember being in medical school and, the, you know, you sit in these lecture halls and some they would bring up like Native Americans being a high risk for all these. It would, it would be like one of these little footnotes that would be in a lot of our lectures and that sort of thing. They never explained why. I mean, medical school, particularly then, was wouldn't want to touch anything that they might see as a even mildly political issue, even though not discussing it made it one, really. Um, do you, you, you must be annoyed by this. Do you, does this happen to you? Like, um, do you, are you like sitting in your lecture class and then like the teacher will mention something about Native Americans and then all like the white students in your class just turn their heads and like, look at you to see your response. Does that, does that <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, you're like, what? Listen, usually yeah. I just like find a wall and I stare at it. <laughs> just, just anticipating it uh just looking in deep thought until it passes <laughs> right smart. smart student uh molly you're gonna add something i was gonna add to that victor that yeah just to highlight the food desert example during covid right the white river reservation um had one grocery store and during the lockdown it was only open you know from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like it had really limited um, hours and that was their one grocery store for the entire reservation. And so it was just even, you know, during the pandemic, everything got a little bit worse, but yeah, they have very limited access to, to healthy foods for sure. One thing that I was like recently educated about uh, during a discussion about diabetes prevention was epigenetics and, and like my... I'm a doctor of modern European history, so if I go off the rails at any point, I'm going <laughs> to rely on one of you three to gently guide me back. Uh, but I found that fascinating, the concept of like um, intergenerational trauma and, and epigenetics and how that can impact healthcare today. Um, is that something either of you could explain to listeners who, like me, are, are relatively ignorant on it? And that to the 
I, I can take this one actually okay. because <laughs> actually it's, it's interesting because I did an episode recently about the intergenerational trauma uh, of uh, the Persian diaspora after the the revolution and, and how this most recent set of protests sort of reignited this trauma. And excuse me, one of the one of the guests mentioned that there was a study in mice in which they looked at sort of epigenetics of stress response. They had pregnant mice and they like, they would give them the, the scent of rose blossom or something, and then they'd shock them. And then the the mouse would grow to be really fearful of those shocks that are associated with the rose blossom. And then what they noticed was that like the children of the mice would also re- respond poorly to like that same rose blossom scent, even though they didn't have the uh, exposure to it. And I looked into it. I I mean, because the truth of it is, I, I don't think you can inherit specific phobias. That just doesn't happen. But I, I kind of pushed back on that point a little bit. And I got a lot of messages from molecular pathologists <laughs> who were like, so you can't stress during pregnancy. And it can be, it can affect the DNA. It can affect the DNA. And that can, that can be passed down. Changes in the DNA, disruption in the DNA. You can't inherit specific phobias or, or, or fears or stresses per se, but it can clearly cause genetic damage when you have that much stress. And then on top of that, of course, we're talking about the, the, the psychological impact it has on someone and, and, and then how they raise their children and how their children grow up. So it is, I, I agree. It's a very interesting subject, um, but I don't, I don't want to get any more molecular pathologist emails. <laughs> Molly, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I'm glad you took this epigenetics question from me. <laughs> you know, one thing about your, you're going back to what you were saying, Victor, about the situations that, that have sort of predicated this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is most of the land that these Indian reservations are on in the United States, like there's 326, if I'm, I read that correctly, is not on great land. It's like land that's like close to like mines or places where there's some sort of radiation or there's some sort of issue. It's not great like for growing uh, food itself directly there. Is that is that correct? Is that part of this? Correct. Yeah, I think a lot of it was it, the, the intention was to put indigenous peoples on land that wasn't as fertile. Uh, and that that's kind of goes back into what I was talking about traditional foods and how it's difficult. Uh, But I think, you know, I don't know if the science was all there at the time. And I think now uh, a lot of indigenous land, a lot of reservations, uh, actually they found out that they're, yeah, they're on like on top of big mines and like uh, things that the Western world finds really valuable. And so there's a, there's a shift almost to, uh almost you see it in like policies and lawsuits today to start trying to grab more uh minerals from the land that that uh that they actually put us on which they didn't think was valuable and now now they're like wait there's like (laughs) copper under there um (laughs) yeah like a a flat's a good example of that right exactly yeah 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 Yeah. well you know the uh podcaster and uh the rapper uh propaganda prop i'm james you probably have Mm -hmm. met him you know he he speaks about how initially they they put the african-americans uh in the the waterfront they said here you're gonna live in these places by the uh by the the ocean where you can't really grow things that well and then after a while they realized oh no that's really valuable property (laughs) And then they started trying to find ways to get them out of there. It seems to be our our national MO 
Um, it, can we get back to the IHS a little bit? So you guys have mentioned Indian Health Services. It's come up a couple times. And James, I'd also want to hear your, because you yeah. worked there as well. I'd like to hear, like, what are some things that the IHS is doing well? What are some things that uh, need work and how? I just want to say the IHS, uh, I think they, they, they're doing what they can't. A lot of it, they're doing what they well with what they have. Uh, I would say like a lot of the issues are underfunding and we don't exactly know how well, like we don't really know the potential quite yet because they just don't have enough funding. So uh, I think like, I would just like to insert that caveat <laughs> into the conversation first. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I only have experience on one reservation and there, you know, every, everyone is different for sure. I think someone might know more than me, but the Alaska health system, Indian health system is still part of the IHS, but it's like kind of its own thing. And they are the kind of the gold standard for, or they're, they're kind of the, they are doing the best with what they have. And I, I don't know, maybe you guys know James or Victor that if they have more funding is probably a big part of it if they just have more funding. Um, but they are kind of touted as the, the leader in IHS right now. I know but less about this than either of you, I'm sure. But um, I know I worked on an NIH grant years ago um, with someone who'd worked with Alaskan Native people. And um, they were talking about this Promodores de Salud model, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It came from Oakland, actually. But uh, like it's a peer mentor model for health education that they had implemented there. And uh, we were trying to get money to implement that on the Yaki Reservation. Didn't work, shockingly. Um, but... <laughs> um, that model that they use of like using people from the community to educate people from the community rather than like uh i guess you could call it like white men in white coats um worked worked very well for them and i think it's it's a very desirable model to replicate it's not that expensive either um and we were doing it with diabetes prevention right so like chiefly my thing is riding bikes uh has been my whole life and so uh just yeah, just a big old bike riding hippie. Um, but like it, riding bikes is very good for you, as it turns out, which is which is <laughs> nice. Uh, so um, the thing that we've been doing with a lot of my friends on the Yaki Reservation is getting folks, uh, helping them out with a bike and, and helmet and lights and all the things that you need, teaching them to fix the bike, right? And then having them uh, go ahead and ride the bike and then like it, it having them bring friends and family members to come back and ride the bike and... and and have a goal event as part of that. And that's worked very well for us too. So that model that they implemented has been super successful within this very small context of um, get, getting yucky folks to ride bikes. Yeah, just going off of that, I mean, that sounds awesome. Uh, and I think one of the limitations of the IHS is that it's this huge bureaucracy. So it's hard to do stuff like that. Like, for instance, at the Yaki tribe, I'm sure, you know, we're not the easiest job to work with, but uh, <laughs> but we're probably easier than the IHS. Yeah. Because <laughs> IHS, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think that that's a huge limitation. Like even if you want to do a study on the IHS, it has to be approved by like all of these government officials and bureaucrats, and uh, and I think that that makes it really difficult, and especially because. You know, and there's so many branches of the government that the Indian Health Service is just one small, you know, piece of it. Uh, 
and it's not necessarily one that's like heavily prioritized by the government. But there there are improvements that are being made. And I think in this last appropriations bill, uh, the Indian Health Service got like funded a lot more than it than it had previously. So hopefully we're, we'll see some improvements. I think they're doing really well when it comes to uh, digital health, the integration of uh, of electronic medical systems. I think that made a significant impact uh, when that was introduced. Uh, and then, you know, I think the Indian Health Service, like the model does well in giving a lot of freedom to tribes to choose. Do we want to continue with the Indian Health Service or do we want to take our health system over and run it ourselves, but still use the same money that would have been used anyways? I think that's what a lot of the clinics in Alaska did uh, in terms of having like, it's called 638 clinic or 638 clinics or tribal health systems. It's really cool what they did in Alaska because those are some of the most remote, remote villages, you know, in the U.S. And uh, and I think that is something that we should be paying more attention to, especially, you know, when we're talking about, you know, we talk about Alaska, that they're remote. But a lot of tribes in other parts of the U.S. are maybe not as remote, but they're in very similar situations and that they're kind of disconnected, like on food deserts. Um and I think the the same model can be used, but not every tribe is at the place where they're capable uh, yet of taking over like the the, the operations, the staff. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and every tribe is kind of in a different place. I'm yeah. interested. I'm interested. I, I think you were mostly tongue in cheek, but when you when you mentioned the Yaki tribe is not that easy to work with, what 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 do you mean? Like, is it <laughs> is is a is there a lot of different opinions? Is that why? Is there uh, is it hard to why is it hard to manage, or why why would that be difficult? We're just very militant, um, and <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think we just you know we just do our own thing and, uh, and very independent and. and yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just kind of like, I think I think we just have a very uh, rebellious nature in us. Like, <laughs> we're sort of, but uh, yeah, just really headstrong and like, we don't work the same on the same timeline. I think sometimes <laughs> it's like when, yeah. for instance, like, uh, <laughs> like I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, there was this uh, this shrimp farmer dude. Our traditional one of our traditional. Uh, spiritual leaders, political leaders. He passed away in uh, early 2000s. His name was Anselmo Valencia. And uh, they were bringing down, they're trying to introduce uh, shrimp farming in the traditional villages in Sonora, Mexico. So they brought this guy all the way down. He's this businessman and, uh, you know, he's running on on time. <laughs> and uh, they, they brought him down to the traditional authorities in one of the pueblos. And then all of a sudden, uh, in, in, right in the middle of the meeting, the snake, you see this snake on the floor go by. And then Anselmo Valencia, he's like, stop, wait for a second. And he grabs the snake and then he looks at it and he says, we have to stop the meeting. I have to go back to Tucson. And this business guy is like, what the hell? Yo, I just came from like Manhattan and I flew all the way. I'm in this <laughs> village and like, and they stopped the meeting. And, and this guy's like, confused i think he got really angry uh and that never happened to him in a business meeting before but there was <laughs> you know a traditional aspect that i think we just put that above everything else 
Um, like during even today during times of ceremony, like no one's answering emails. No tribal government official is going to get back to you within that those like three four weeks because they're doing spiritual um, practices and and honoring that. So yeah, yeah. I get it. I, from my perspective, everyone is lovely and like it's nice to have a community where everyone cares about each other and like wants everyone else to be healthy and like that's great there are times when like recently we did a live show to raise money to buy more bikes and uh someone from iheart was trying to get a w9 out of us and i was like nah it's it's like easter week it's, it's not it's not gonna happen like um like it's just i did but it's fine you explain it and like i always attribute like i'm not fully culturally uh fluent right like i'm a, I'm a guy from england like it was different where i grew up so like things Are you're not yaki <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't tell yeah stout is uh it's right up there with valencia but yeah like i i'm obviously i don't have full cultural fluency so it's on me to kind of listen and learn over time well, rather than be frustrated and bulldoze shit well you're i mean obviously you're you're very good at that in my my opinion from what i've seen from you so far but i'm very curious actually from both james and molly like when you guys first started going to the reservation what um, surprised you? Uh, what was different than you had envisioned? What, you know, because I'm assuming you got all your knowledge of what reservations were like, for, like from Hollywood, like I did, you know, what what was fact? What was fiction? Um, yeah, it was my first time like on a reservation. Um, and I think it was. It. it, it it sort of felt like a, a little bit of a different um, country almost. Like you're in Arizona and you drive three hours and you feel like you're in a really different place. It feels just a little bit different. Um, and just, it's beautiful. A, the one I'm on was, or the one that I went to is in White River, Arizona. It really is beautiful in the mountains um, along a river. But it's, you know, a lot of single story housing um, that are all kind of government cookie cutter housing. And, I got to kind of go into the homes too when we were doing house visits. So that felt, I felt very like privileged and it felt special to be able to do that. Um, as a very foreign person, right. I felt, I felt like a, an outsider. Um, and yeah, I mean a lot, there isn't, there not central heat for these house, some of these houses, lots of the floors were, uh, dirt, like not actual flooring on the houses. Um, so that was, I think, surprising to me because it seems like that is not something you think of when you think of America. Um, but that was that probably was like the most surprising. But then like the street dogs running around everywhere was kind of classic. I think that my first my first drive down, I like had to stop because like a pack of dogs went by and that was kind of out of a out of a movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Like, obviously, I'm not American either. So like, no. I, I yeah, it's shocking. I actually am. I'm from te Texas. I just watched the Harry Potter films on repeat. And, uh, that's how I learned to be a turf. Uh, no, um, I am not a turf. Uh, I, um, I don't think that needs. I don't think that yeah, needs. Yeah, no, I think we need no, that. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people should go away. Um, uh, I so like I didn't maybe receive a lot of that like sort of ingrained kind of. Like I'm British, right? We fucking did settler colonialism everywhere. I don't want to erase that for a second. Uh, but um, I, I, you know, I, so I did just go to the res to ride my bike through it. Um, Pasquayaki Res has nice roads, lovely bike lanes, um, and it's much smaller than like uh, the Tahon Autumn Res, which is next door. Um, that's the size of Connecticut for people who aren't familiar. And um, 
I know I I'm from a part of England that's very rural where people all talk to each other. And that's a thing that I don't like about living in a town in California is that everyone just kind of lives in a little box and kind of moves around and uh, doesn't talk to each other. And uh, I, at least in my experience on the reservation, everyone is friendly and nice. Uh, most of the people I run into is friendly and nice. Um, and so I really like that. Um, first guy I ran into was a traditional artist, um, David Moreno, uh, who does, he runs an art program there. He's a very lovely guy. Um, and uh, we just were chatting, I think. And uh, I was trying to encourage, I think I was trying to encourage him to go on a bike ride with me. And like, he didn't have a bike. So then I was just trying to encourage, like, I was like, maybe I could get some bikes and come back. And I spoke to some people in diabetes prevention and, and we got some bikes and came back. But um, it took like, obviously people's houses aren't super duper fancy, but they're fine. Like people have some nice houses on the res. Like, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a super fancy house and, and like it's, it's the houses that are not, that distinct from those that I see in San Diego. Um the it's beautiful too. Like especially down if, if you go on the autumn reservation further down, um we did a a ride there in 2019 and we went out the night before from the Yaki reservation with a group of us and we did like a big camp out uh and then we we did a ride the next day. Their roads are not uh, quite as nice as the Yaki roads. We all got we ran out of inner tubes because everyone got so many punctures. <laughs> but like it's it's yeah it's beautiful landscape it's really gorgeous uh i think the biggest shock to me was the donkeys the 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 donkeys on the autumn roads something else like just just wild ass donkeys that uh like at night it sounds like there's a murder occurring because <laughs> it just make these horrendous noises and like you puncture on your bike and you go for a little bit of shake and it's very hot and suddenly you realize there are like 10 bottles like just uh just chilling there too so uh that that was the weirdest thing, but like, I don't know people shouldn't just walk onto reservations and start like trying to have their cultural immersion experience or whatever. That's uh, that's a bit cringe. But um, yeah, like people equally shouldn't think that it's a scary or different or dangerous. But like Arizona feels foreign to me. Like I, I go to Phoenix and and that mm -hmm. that is that is a scary mm -hmm. experience for other reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah. But like no, I, I I've always felt very welcome and comfortable there. Yeah, if I can just add one more thing. Oh, sorry. Just, I think the other, you, that's a great point, James, but like the striking part for me too is that I felt very, yeah, I felt very welcomed um, when I was there and they like have a very soft way of speaking and I'm like a loud, annoying American. And so like, have, obviously they're American as well, but I have kind of a loud voice and they're very soft-spoken and so gentle and so um, just like appreciative. And I kind of, for me, I was like, wow, this is like amazing that you have the resiliency to feel appreciative when like, I don't feel like you should, you know, feel grateful or appreciative to me. Um, I thought that was like my, the most striking that I felt. Mo Molly's so nice. She's like trying to apologize for being, listen, you're talking to two podcasters who are like obnoxious <laughs> is our nature. It's like part of our <laughs> DNA and why yeah, we do yeah. this. You don't need to explain yourself there. Um, Victor, uh, you've already touched on this a little bit, but do you find yourself still still dispelling myths and stereotypes about native americans even at medical school yeah yeah all the time uh and you know we talked about the medical uh misconceptions and 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 those things but i, I think they're it's it's like 
like I said, I feel like the the American educational system, it left so much room for interpretation. And what it did give was, you know, a lot of it wasn't true. But um, I think what I'm really battling is that people just, the, the level of exposure they have is, is so minimal that they're coming into these conversations and discussions with, with pretty much almost nothing. Uh, and so the average American knows very, very little about Native Americans. And when I say that, I don't mean Native American culture, because I don't think anyone, any Native American really cares if they know our culture or not. In fact, they might even protect it. But we're talking about what is, what is the experience of Native Americans in this country? What happened? What were the policies? Uh, what are the issues that are still going on today? You know, there's it, the, the level of education, it's it's just not to the point where I find we can even have these discussions, the discussions that we need to have. So I think the most taxing thing on me is that whenever I talk about indigenous experiences or anything related to indigenous health, I have to give so much background mm -hmm. that every time I have to educate someone on, you know, what is colonization, what happened, uh, and the very basics of of I think that should be basic in this country. Uh, the all these basics, and by that time, you know I think people have uh, gotten so much information that maybe they didn't know before. They get mm -hmm. overwhelmed, mm -hmm. and and these things can also be very touchy subjects. I think because we haven't been bold enough in the U.S. to actually just talk about them, uh, and I think people you know might be a little afraid to acknowledge these things and in, in, somewhere inside. And I think what would have helped with that is if they were, you know, exposed to it uh, in, you know, starting in elementary school history, starting in middle school, high school, mm -hmm. all of these things I think will make, well, we need to start doing that in the educational system if we're really going to make progress. Yeah. As like someone who teaches history or has taught history, um, I think that's very true. And sadly, it's only getting worse, like places like Florida, right? And making it harder and harder to talk about that. But I think when people come, certainly, so like I teach a community college course, an American history course. And I think when people come to that course, I'm in California, like many of them, for instance, could not name the tribe whose like, ancestral and current homelands they are sitting in and learning. And then obviously, to understand those experiences you have to have a name for them right and if you don't have a name for the people then you're a long way from understanding i guess but it's something that's still desperately lacking in the american education system um, and it doesn't seem like it, people are pushing hard enough to get that rectified like it's uh yeah it, it's a very big gap even in places you know like you could be in, at school in Arizona, like you could be an hour from some of the biggest reservations in the United States, right? The Autumn and the, and the Navajo, and uh, maybe not an hour. Everything's a long way away in Arizona, but and, and and not understand anything about those people's lived experience if you're in Scottsdale. Yeah, in the Bay Area, I've grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I didn't, I knew very little about the Native people that were here until my one of my oldest son had to do a project here in San Francisco on the Miwok tribe, 
And then only then did I learn, I'm like, oh my God, they were everywhere here. You know, there's so much the Ohlone tribe. So uh, even even here, you know, which is a relatively progressive, not Floridian uh, system, you know, uh, did I not learn a lot about that? But I, I also, Victor, I also hear you like, yeah, I know it must be exhausting. And we appreciate you coming on to talk to us about it. James and I have talked about this before. It's it's something that I at least grapple with sometimes, like in terms of like bringing on guests, you know, like I want people to talk about these things that are difficult and and sometimes maybe even a little traumatic to like talk about. But there's this balance of like, well, I want the people who've experienced it know the most about it to speak about it, but also don't want to keep re-exposing people to like the same exhausting yeah. trauma every time you know it, it becomes a, a tough thing for for me at least to figure out and balance you know yeah definitely yeah i think um you know these podcasts are a great way to to do that to have these discussions because it it actually i think it takes away from the taxation because it hits a lot of people at once you know uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know listeners in the tens we have listeners in the yeah. tens victor <laughs> Yeah, we that's much a, better. Yeah, yeah, we'll do a QR code so you can just be like, "Hey, hey, check this out." Yeah, that's a good idea, <laughs> colleague. So, so Victor, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I have I have one last question for you. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you want to go back uh, and practice uh, on the reservation, be a part of the the community again. Do you plan on on bringing in traditional healing components to your practice? And if so, are you going to do specialty training? Is there like a a version of a fellowship that you will do for that? Yeah, I really want to do traditional practices. I'm not a traditional healer myself, um, but uh, I want to partner with them. I, I feel like I have the connections to traditional people to do stuff like that. Uh, one of the things like I really want to do is uh, try to do a lot of public health uh initiatives out, out of my practice like for instance i want to try to find ways to help people grow their own food start their own gardens do community gardens i really want to get our traditional foods up and running again uh and there's a lot of people already working on this what you know which is amazing uh, i just want to be of service to that effort and i think i think that is one of the most important things right now. I also really want to do like public health initiatives around language revitalization. Mm -hmm. I think language is so important when it comes to uh, the mental health of indigenous youth. Uh, indigenous, I, I believe that indigenous youth who know how to speak their language are more mentally strong uh, during the, the continuing tides of colonization that they face uh, in this Western world. If they have their language I think that that's huge in terms of resilience uh, as culture as well. I think, you know, finding ways to uh, to sort of support culture as medicine, culture as prevention, uh, participating in ceremonies as, you know, making it, you know, very apparent that uh, to, to your audience and to the world that 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 is protective of indigenous health, indigenous mental health. And so, the, you know, there's all these facets of traditional or traditional ways of life that were all very healthy to us. And I think a huge part of the battle is uh, that we're still having right now because of colonization is revitalizing those things. And then th those things, you know, the more that they're revitalized, the more that we decolonize, the healthier we're going to be. But at the same time, recognizing that Western medicine can also be very effective too, 
if it's just properly funded and if the service is effective. And so that's the other the other side of the coin that I want to be working on as well. Oh, excellent, man. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on before we finish is because it seems relatively current and, and newsy, right? Is and I think Victor made an excellent point that like colonization isn't a thing that stopped. It's a thing that we keep doing. Uh like we, not not we including Victor. Uh, but you know, like weird people like me, um, like uh, the the Indian Child Welfare Act, right? ICWA, um, is a thing that the Supreme Court is is like set up to take a swing at, um, and I know that that is an area of great concern to many people. And I was just in a tribal building last week looking at uh, books for Yaki children, right, to help them stay connected with their culture if they're in a family which is not a tribal family um can you if you feel comfortable explain what ICWA is and then the damage it does to young people to be pulled away from their culture and and sort of uh mm. yeah like this little act of colonization that happens every time that happens yeah i'm glad you brought that up because colonization is definitely continuing for instance we, t- we think about the black hills in south dakota and the gold mining the gold rush there well, there's still dozens of uh, of gold mining permits that are pending right now in the Black Hills. There, there are dozens of gold mines still operating there, and the Lakota and Dakota are still fighting for the Black Hills. It's uh, just one instance, but you see that all across the United States. And I think when it comes to the Indian Child Welfare Act, that's another really good example. Uh, so basically, the Indian Child Welfare Act uh if if a if a native child is in the foster care system uh and the, basically it it helps to uh to support those children to find a placement with a family who is either who is from their tribe uh from their cultural background and the reasoning behind that is because they to number one to uh to stop the history of assimilation when it comes to taking native children from their families and we we know about that you know through the u.s boarding school system that was one example but it kind of transitioned at a point once uh once boarding schools were terminated those forced boarding schools it kind of transitioned into the foster care system and at one point a huge proportion of native children were in foster care and they were being placed with white families and those white families were not exposing them to their cultural background. And that in itself was potentiating assimilation because that's another native child, dozens of native ch- children, thousands of native children who don't know their language, their culture, because they've been removed from community due to systemic factors, right? And so this bill, it doesn't it doesn't say, oh, you can only go with a native family. It it helps to ensure that if there is a suitable native family from their tribe, that, that they will get first priority because they know that culture is also very important to indigenous child well-being as well. So the 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 battle right now is being brought on by this this lawsuit that primarily handles like mining and oil companies. But they're taking this Indian Child Welfare Act uh, lawsuit pro bono because if you can get rid of the Indian Child Welfare Act on the basis 
that they're claiming it's it's racism, right? They're claiming that native people are getting some unjust preferential treatment when it comes to adopting native children over white people on the basis of race. Uh, where that falls short is that the basis of the Indian Child Welfare Act is that indigenous peoples are not a race. They're sovereign nations. They have a political status distinct from all other, any other race in the U.S. And that is the basis that tribes are arguing for, that, hey, we have this political status. We're a tribal government. We have the rights to raise our children. We have the rights to teach our children, to make sure they grow up in community with our culture. That's not a race issue. That's a political issue. That's a, that, that relates to our political status as a tribal nation, as a sovereign nation. And so they're going to be battling that in court. But if the Supreme Court decides that this Indian Child Welfare Act is, you know, racist or discriminatory based on race, it means that a number of other uh, bills, another under uh, of other things in the law that that, for instance, um, that exist due to the political status of indigenous nations have the potential to also be thrown out on the basis of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And that I think will, you know, will lead to a lot of, a lot more land grabs, a lot more, um, a lot less services being provided, for instance, like the Indian health service, for instance, they might say, Oh, why do native Americans get this healthcare? Or they might, they might start taking down a whole, a whole bunch of other things that are really important to us. So it's really, um, it's a huge issue right now. It's a troubling time, and, and I could see how people in the past might have said, oh, don't worry, that won't happen. I think it's pretty clear that these things can happen pretty quickly, pretty aggressively now. I think the last <laughs> yeah. couple of years have shown a lot of people that things can get worse somehow, you know, uh, and that these things can be taken, uh, more and more can be taken from people that have already had so much taken from them. So I guess I like to finish off normally instead of just being like, here is some sad shit and just pointing to it and then kind of uh, like dropping the mic, uh, asking people how they can do something to stand in solidarity. So like if either of you want to mention, like, I know this Bears Ears, Oak Flat, there are other attempts to expropriate and colonize indigenous land and sacred spaces and fucking border wall is bulldozing Kumeyaay graveyards like as I'm talking to you. Um, are there ways that people can stand in solidarity with indigenous communities I'll go first because Victor will have a better answer than me and he can he can he can jump in after me. But I think as um, like a low level entry thing that people can do and it kind of um, touches on how trying to remove the burden on asking for education and doing the education yourself um, for that white people can do is just you can read books by native authors and that teaches you a lot of history and there's like some incredible native authors who are writing beautiful stories that are weaved with fact and fiction um but books and then like uh native media um res reservation dogs is like a tv show on hulu that is a really great show that everyone should watch um so i think you can do some like easy things that <laughs> just takes remove some of the needing to be taught to on yourselves and you can just learn about what we're missing so those are like very very easy and then in terms of um like just from my point of view as a as an nd there are a lot of ways to to get involved because these um 
The reservations are chronically understaffed. They're just like rural medicine, IHS or not IHS, rural medicine is very under understaffed in, in our country. And so there's always opportunities for um, doctors to go and work. And it's like valuable and amazing for us and for the community to be able to do. Um, so there are ways to do that through locum companies and directly through the through the IHS um, sites. Victor? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think conversation, you know, I, I would love if uh, white allies would talk to their family members and their friends. And I think there are a lot of moments where in these day to day personal interactions, uh, when na natives might come up uh, to stand up, like if you hear something that is ignorant you hear something that might be racist to stand up to the people that you know in your own circles and say hey no that's not correct uh to talk to your friends and family about what you learned with with regard to colonization or the issues that native american people face because i think some of the people that we listen to the most are the people that we love uh, our friends and our family and i think there needs to be a lot more conversation in those spaces a lot more accountability because i know that it can be very hard when when difficult things come up in in those personal interactions to challenge someone but i think that that is where that that sort of thing can really move the needle in the long run uh, and i think that sometimes people just choose to stay silent and i would like that to change yeah, very well said. That seems like a, a fantastic place to uh, to close it here. Thank you both so much for coming uh, on and hanging out with us. Uh, you've been listening to The House of Pod and It Could Happen Here. Uh, let's get some plugs in for you guys. Can you, uh, let's start with you, Victor. Tell us where people can find you or uh, plug anything you want to plug. Uh, come to the res. Just ask for me. <laughs> uh, original facebook yeah uh yeah uh my my instagram and twitter are uh velo carmen v-l-o-c-a-r-m-e-n very cool and molly i exited the twitter sphere after elon musk took over so i'm off <laughs> but you can find me in sacramento <laughs> <laughs> all right you guys have been so awesome uh, thank you both for coming on. We hope to uh, talk again sometime. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus. 
Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm your host, Mia Wong. And today we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. In the last half decade, a growing political focus on China has transformed a cottage industry of American China watchers into a sprawling metropolis of pseudo-analysis, a veritable machine that churns out racialized fear of the Chinese other and transforms it into economic papers that close with quote-unquote policy solutions about the so-called China problem. In these circles, a consensus is emerging about what they call Chinese state capitalism and its supposed risk to the United States. China's economy, they argue, is not a free market economy like that of the United States. Instead, China's large array of state-owned industries and its willingness to use investments to incentivize specific kinds of research while protecting companies from pure market competition means that the state, and not the market, dictates the course of the Chinese economy. Under these assumptions, the Chinese economy poses two major threats to American companies in the American security state. First, state-owned industries subsidized by the state will inevitably outcompete American companies because American companies can't match the sheer quantity of capital held by the Chinese state, which violates the fairness and competitiveness of the free market by making companies compete on unequal grounds. Second, the close ties between the Chinese government and state-owned industries, and even private Chinese companies, means that their technology will be used by the CCP to strengthen its military by stealing American technology. The problem with this consensus at a fundamental level is that it's utterly uninterested in how Chinese state-owned enterprises, known as SOEs, actually function. And this is a real problem, because Chinese SOEs are not what you, or the people writing American foreign policy, think they are. So today, we're going to take a dive into the belly of the state and figure out how SOEs actually function and determine what this actually does to the prevailing theories about how China's economy works, and what it means for both the American and Chinese working classes. But before we get into the structure of the SOE, we need to talk about state capitalism. State capitalism is an old term. 
Most of the people writing about it will trace it back to Lenin's new economic policy, a massive shift towards the market in the Soviet economy of the early 20s. The new economic policy re-legalized private capitalist firms, albeit in a much reduced capacity, with a very large state sector driving the economy as a whole, a condition Lenin dubbed state capitalism. But even using state capitalism to describe both the new economic plan and the current situation in China reveals a profound misunderstanding of both Lenin's NEP and the modern Chinese economy. For one thing, during the NEP, state-owned industries accounted for at least 70% of Soviet industrial output, increasing to 77% by the end of the policy. Meanwhile, despite the hype behind Chinese state capitalism, China's state sector represents a measly 40% of China's economy. Uniquely high for a capitalist economy, but quite literally the inverse of the relationship between capitalist firms and the state in the USSR. That 60% of China's GDP is private and only 40% is generated by the state, and don't look too closely at that 40% because only 30% of it is from actual state industries, the other 10% resulting from the regular function of the state itself, shows what actually drives the Chinese economy. Not the state at all, but the market. This is very important because the story of the Chinese economy in the last 40 years is not simply the story of a state-run command economy transforming into a market economy. It is also, and arguably primarily, the story of the market consuming the state from the inside out. This becomes more clear the closer you look at how state-owned enterprises are actually structured. And it is here the weakness of the very term state-owned enterprise comes into focus. Academics and journalists write about state-owned enterprises as if the word means one specific thing. But the reality is that there are an enormous number of different kinds of SOEs with different structures and different relationships to the state. When regular people think about state ownership, it tends to invoke the specter of the USSR. In a Soviet-style SOE, and we'll take as an example of Chinese SOE in the socialist period, which functions similarly, the firm is literally a government department. For example, in 1979, China established the Bureau of Non-Ferrous Metals. And this is the best name you're going to get out of the CCP in this entire episode. That bureau was in charge of running aluminum production. The government ministry simply ran the mines and the refineries and the factories directly, and everyone working in the factory was a direct, a direct government employee paid by the state. This is also pretty close to how the American post office is structured. But Soviet SOEs, crucially, were not firms that competed for money in the market. They worked towards a production plan and were assigned resources based on their output. In this way, they're closer to a municipal water service than most modern SOEs. Their job, in theory, was to make a thing or a service, not make money. Modern Chinese SOEs, despite sharing the same name as their socialist period predecessors, are very different. For one thing, Modern Chinese SOEs, as well as a lot of other state-owned companies like the Saudi government's oil company, Saudi Aramco, are not directly part of the government at all. Instead, they're structured as regular corporations whose stock happens to be owned by the government. This shareholding relationship is one of the most common kinds of modern SOEs, but, as we'll see, they make ownership and management structures increasingly complex. The other major difference from Soviet firms is that companies like Saudi Aramco and modern Chinese SOEs are for-profit companies. 
that don't exist to provide a service, they exist to make money. This gets very weird very quickly. For one thing, while we tend to think of state-owned enterprises as belonging to the national governments, municipal, provincial, and even district and county governments in China have their own SOEs. On a conceptual level, this makes sense. China's economy is the size of a continent, and individual provinces have the geographic size, population, natural resources, and economy of entire nations, which means that provincial SOEs can rival national firms. But this also means that state-owned industries from different levels of government are directly competing with each other on the market. This is something beyond the experience of previous theorists of the state and capitalism. Frederick Engels, the close friend of Karl Marx, was able to predict the rise of capitalist state-owned industries, writing, quote, At a further stage of evolution, this form also becomes insufficient. The official representative of the capitalist state will ultimately have to undertake the direction of production. This necessity for conversion into state property is felt first in the great institutions for intercourse and communication, the post office, the telegrams, the railways. If the crisis demonstrates the incapacity of the bourgeoisie for managing any longer modern productive forces, the transformation of the great establishment for production and distribution into joint stock companies and state property shows how unnecessary the bourgeoisie are for that purpose. All the social functions of the capitalists are now performed by salaried employees. The capitalist has no social function than that of pocketing dividends, tearing off coupons, and gambling at the stock exchange, where the different capitalists despoil one another of their capital. At first, the capitalist mode of production forces out the workers. Now, it forces out the capitalists and reduces them, just as it reduced the workers, to the ranks of the surplus population, although not immediately into those of the Industrial Reserve Army. But Engels imagined the state as a collective capitalist replacing the individual capitalist. What no one could have foreseen was capitalism, break, was capitalism breaking the collective nature of the state entirely, hollowing it out until its chunks competed with each other on the market. This is the state of modern Chinese SOEs. These SOEs are capitalist firms subject to market discipline. They can, and will, fail and go under if they aren't making enough money. And the government can and will tear them apart and force the still state-owned pieces to compete against each other. These state-owned industries also largely are not supposed to be monopolies. Firms that get too large and powerful can and will be broken up and the parts, once again, set to compete against each other. Weirder still, these SOEs are also listed on the stock market, meaning individual capitalists, and as we'll see later, even foreign firms, can buy 49% stakes in nominally state-owned industries. Now, if the state doing market competition against itself wasn't weird enough for you, let me introduce another complication. The State-Owned Asset Supervision and Administration Commission of the State Council, and no, the State-Owned Asset Supervision and Administration Commission of the State Council is not a name that sounds any better in Chinese. If you have a bureaucracy rooted in Leninism, the product is a veritable cornucopia of the most absolutely dogshit names you've ever heard in your entire life. This commission is better known for obvious reasons as SASAC. And it is the government body that owns the shares of most of the largest firms in China, which are known as the national champions. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking you now understand the structure of Chinese SOEs. SASAC, which is a part of the state, owns the SOEs, Bob's your uncle, everyone goes home for the night and the episode ends right here. Unfortunately, it is way more convoluted than that. 
When I said Sasak owns the shares of the largest firms in China, that's only true in a technical sense. What Sasak actually owns are the shares of massive holding companies, companies that exist on paper, but whose existence is purely dedicated to owning the shares of other companies. These holding companies own the shares of the publicly traded companies you might have heard of, like Sinopec, China's state-owned oil companies. And this is where the simplistic narrative of the Chinese SOE, a single firm owned by the state under its direct political control, completely falls apart. Because again, the state doesn't really own these firms directly. What they own is a holding company that owns the stock of the SOEs. That holding company, however, is the actual basis of the organization of Chinese state ownership. The building blocks of the Chinese state economy aren't single state-owned enterprises at all. The economy is actually composed of what are called business groups. American listeners may not be very familiar with business groups, but they're a common sight in what became known as the tiger economies, a series of economies that saw rabid industrial development in the post-World War II era, largely fueled by the demands of American military supply lines for its wars in Korea and Vietnam. The two most infamous are the Japanese Keretsu, the successor to the old Japanese Zaibatsu that dominated the pre-war Japanese economy, and which were to some extent broken up after the war, and Korean Chaebol conglomerates. These massive groups of businesses are either owned by the same people or families, in the case of the Chaebol, or linked by mutual shareholding of each other's companies, like Keretsu. The groups cooperate and coordinate their business strategy instead of competing against each other, which allows them to carry out a level of long-term planning that's sometimes difficult for individual for-profit companies. Chinese economists sent to Japan to study Keretsu in the 70s and 80s returned with policy in hand. But the business groups that eventually emerged in the Chinese economy after an extended process of trial and error are different than their Korean or Japanese counterparts. Where Chaebol are organized around families and Keretsu are organized around a commercial bank that provides financing for the companies in the group, Chinese businesses are organized by those holding companies 100% owned by Sasak and therefore the Chinese state. Those holding companies, also sometimes called core companies, own the majority of the stock of a variety of publicly traded companies. They also own a finance company, which finances the companies, and work with research institutes, which carry out scientific and research development for the entire group. These research institutes, which are often university-affiliated, are technically non-profit but take money from the core companies in exchange for the research and development they do. Chinese business groups are often massive, organizing hundreds of companies who also maintain trade and supply relations with hundreds more companies technically outside the group. These groups are organized by what's called articles of grouping, which the core holding company who owns the stock and the rest of the companies get those companies to sign. These articles form a top-down structure for the entire group that also includes council and management bodies for the entire group with representatives from each of the companies in the group. This structure, in theory, is how the CCP transmits policy down from single holding companies to all of their downstream subsidiaries and allies. And this is important because, at least in theory, business groups are supposed to carry out government industrial policy and economic development. But in the real world, this is a significant challenge. Because, again, 
Even individual business groups comprise hundreds of companies, and the state's grasp on them is often tenuous, as seen by a wave of state-owned companies that theoretically are supposed to make things getting into real estate speculation, a problem the CCP has been attempting to deal with since 2008 and only really has gotten under control in the last two years. But you know who will not do uh, housing speculation instead of uh, making ads for you? It is the companies and the products and services that support this podcast. And we're back. So confronted with the enormity of the scale of Chinese business groups, how does state control over these groups actually work? In theory, regulation operates around two channels. SASAC owns the holding companies, which allows it, in theory, to make decisions that a shareholder would be able to make in a private corporation. There's also a parallel corporate structure directly run by the party, and high-ranking people in the corporate structure become party members and are sent to cadre trainings at places like the Central Party School in Beijing. Meanwhile, people swap between SASAC and high-level manager positions, and the heads of large SOEs also have positions in the Chinese government itself. Trying to explain all of the positions they have and the councils they're on and their technical ministerial ranks is a disaster because... Oh boy, if you think the American government is confusing, try sorting out who does what in a party state. The moral of the story is that the CCP tries to keep control over the enormous number of companies it technically owns through control of who gets appointed as the head of SOEs, through SASAC, which is directly a part of the state, and by integrating SOE heads into various government and party bodies. They also are somewhat embarrassingly, given that they own these companies, forced to directly go after them through the law into the court system, which works sometimes and also doesn't work other times. But this relationship is multidirectional. Li Wen Lin and Curtis J. Milhopt, two scholars who've written extensively about Chinese corporate structure, argue convincingly that the deep integration of the party into SOEs after state-owned industries have been corporatized that is, turned from direct state industries run by state employees to profit-seeking market corporations owned through shares, was a way to buy the party off and allow these firms to become more capitalist in ways that wouldn't have worked if the party wasn't also getting rich off of it. It's not just that China has state-owned industries, it's that the corporatization of state-owned industries has made the party and the Chinese state increasingly capitalist. And this raises another question. As the Chinese state grows more capitalists, are public and private Chinese firms even all that different? Private firms also have links to the state through equity, have joint ventures with SOEs where private companies will own a part of a company and an SOE will own another part of a company. Private companies expand and get access to credit through partnering with local SOEs. In essence, many of the things that are supposed to make SOEs different from private companies are shared by both from the profit motive to state affiliation. As Milhopt put it, quote, Functionally, SOEs and large POEs, private enterprises, in China share many similarities in the areas commonly thought to distinguish state-owned firms from privately-owned firms. Market access, receipt of state subsidies, proximity to state power, and execution of the government's policy objectives. A complete account of Chinese state capitalism much explained these similarities. Even figuring out what legally is an SOE and what's technically still a private firm gets very weird very fast. ZTE, for example, a giant Chinese telecom telecom company, 
is owned by a bewildering array of shell and holding companies, which are in turn owned by other companies, some of which are state-owned. This is the level of ownership confusion we're working at here. If the largest stake of a company is owned by a holding company that's owned in turn by a combination of two SOEs who own 51% of the stock and a private investor's company who owns 49% of the stock, is the company state-owned? And it gets worse in ZTE's case, because even if you assume, okay, the majority stake in this company is owned by an SOE, therefore it's state-owned, you would assume that the state or a state-owned company would manage the corporation, right? Wrong. (laughs) In ZTE's case, the SOEs worked out an agreement with the other investor, such that ZTE is technically state-owned, but privately managed. And this, it turns out, is a very common arrangement. Because of laws about foreign ownership of companies operating in China, many state-owned enterprises are actually joint partnerships between SOEs and foreign corporations, where the SOE owns 51% of the stock and the foreign corporation owns 49% of the stock while running the actual company and extracting profits from it. Even 100% Chinese firms, of which there are many, pose a challenge to the traditional conception of SOEs as run by the state for the good of the state and its political objectives. This goes back to their structure as corporations the state owns by shareholding. This means, as I've emphasized, that these SOEs aren't government ministries. They're companies trying to make a profit and are run by their own managers. These firms have a total workforce of 70 million people, which makes direct regulation very difficult. In practice, this means SOEs are a lot more autonomous from direct state control, even with all the safeguards put in place than you'd think just from the word state-owned industry. Another thing that makes SOEs more like private companies is that money from SOEs goes back to the company and not to the state, to which it pays dividends but not much else. This means that SOEs have their own revenue stream that's not dependent on state budget allocations. Meanwhile, private firms, like SOEs, are operated by members of symbolic party congresses. And private firms also get state subsidies and access to loans from state banks, a common canard about the unfairness of anti-competitive Chinese SOEs that applies to private firms as well. And at this point, I must point out that any company anywhere in the world can make money by allying with the state and getting access to state resources. The U.S. does this too, especially state and local governments who are all too happy to give enormous tax breaks and even provide prison labor to private companies. Meanwhile, tech companies like Amazon and Google are kept afloat by massive government contracts, to say nothing of the American defense industry. In the U.S., we call this corruption, or at least we used to until it became legal to literally buy senators, a thing that NatSec dipshits always seem to forget when they talk about the uniqueness of the Chinese economy and its relation to subsidies. There are obviously differences between the U.S. and Chinese economies, but arguing that businesses having ties to the state, which they extract benefits from, constitutes a unique form of capitalism is incomprehensibly absurd. None of this has stopped China watchers from the most rabid reactionaries and the most stalwart or self-described stalwart communists to declare that China carries out something called industrial policy through its SOEs, which makes it different from other neoliberal states. So what is industrial policy? In theory, industrial policy refers to the state giving subsidies and funding to specific corporations in order to pursue specific economic objectives the market wouldn't normally have pursued. These writers point the preferential treatment that Chinese SOEs have to credit and subsidies that they receive from the government as evidence of the subordination of the market to the political. 
which they also claim is essentially a form of socialist state planning. My response to this is that I will accept that an SOE getting a subsidy is socialist state planning the moment they agree that the U.S. is a socialist state because of its corn subsidies. Despite writing about China somehow turning everyone into anarcho-capitalists, state subsidies in the form of direct cash transfers, tax breaks, preferential legal treatment, technology transfers, and a thousand other forms of state aid are as old as capitalism itself and are pretty normal even under neoliberalism. People describe these measures as industrial policy. You know, using state favor to promote certain industries. But corn subsidies put lie to the claim that industrial policy is some unique thing of a new era emerging in capitalism that had totally disappeared with neoliberalism. American corn and other agricultural subsidies are one of the largest and most expensive industrial policy regimes in the world, constituting half a trillion dollars spent since 1955. They are also written in as exceptions to most of the world's major free trade agreements. We also need to ask, what is the difference between industrial policy, which is state strategic investment in certain sectors to develop their economy, and regulatory capture, where control over agencies or even the legislature itself is is taken over by special interest groups? This question sounds silly, but the results, a company in a sector getting handed a pile of money in various forms by the state, looks exactly the same. Those corn subsidies arguably are industrial policy. They were technically originally designed to ensure that the U.S. would always have a supply of cheap food. But on the other hand, the real reason they exist has nothing to do with planning whatsoever. They exist because a cabal of legislatures from farming states have enough power to shut down both the House and the Senate if their demands aren't met. So every year, the state bows to the corn lobby and pays them billions of dollars. So, is this industrial policy, or is it regulatory capture? And can the two even be distinguished in capitalist countries? This is a question we need to take very seriously in the Chinese case, at the same time we ask ourselves, what is the actual objective of the Chinese state? Is it decoupling and retrenchment from the West, or is it making money? There is significant evidence that it's the latter. For one thing, China receives an enormous amount of foreign direct investment, something that everyone seems to conveniently forget, even though it was one of the key elements that fueled Chinese industrialization and plays a major role in the Chinese economy to this day. Meanwhile, U.S. affiliates in China alone had over half a trillion dollars of sales just in 2018. While the focus of most analysis has been in flashy disputes between the U.S. and China over their attempts to produce their own semiconductors, China has also liberalized its foreign investment laws in the last few years and allowed foreign companies and industries like insurance to operate directly instead of running through joint partnerships with Chinese stakeholders. Even the chairman of SASAC gave a speech in February about how his goal was to increase the profitability of Chinese SOEs. China is, and will remain, deeply enmeshed in the global capitalist economy. And this, I think, is as much as their unwillingness to grasp how SOEs actually work, the fatal flaw of analysis of the Chinese economy and its obsession with formal state ownership. These analyses are not a serious attempt to look at the actual structure of the economic system the entire world, including China, lives under. There are several kinds of arguments that we need to look beyond formal ownership to understand capitalism more broadly. There is a somewhat complicated Marxist argument, which holds that while we talk about capitalism as a system where the ruling class owns the means of production and the working class, which owns nothing, is forced to work for them, that's not all capitalism is. Capitalism is also a series of commodity production in which objects confront each other in the market, 
and appear as commodities with their own discrete values based on abstract labor time. Generalized commodity production, which is people producing commodities for market exchange and not for other purposes, is the other core component of capitalism. And when you're dealing with generalized commodity production, it doesn't really matter whether the company that owns the holding company that owns the company that makes the commodity is owned by the state or a hedge fund or a bank or a sovereign wealth fund. It still reproduces commodity production, which means it's still just capitalism, but with more complex formal ownership mechanisms. There's also the David Graeber argument, which goes, okay, sure, state-owned property is technically the property of the people, TM. But try and actually go there and see how fast the cops show up and take you away. Just like private ownership, you still don't own public property in any substantive sense. It's just controlled by a different group of bureaucrats with guns. And focusing purely on ownership to define an economic system gets you nowhere. And then there's my argument, which is that people are absolutely obsessed with looking at capitalism from the perspective of capital, which means that they are absolutely obsessed with the question of ownership. But what happens if you look at so-called state capitalism and the nature of state ownership from the perspective of the working class? Everything suddenly becomes a lot clearer. SOE workers are a bit better off than their non-SOE counterparts, but their jobs suck ass, their hours are long, and they don't make that much money. They are fully dependent on selling their labor to the market to survive. And all of these companies have hundreds of subsidiaries and suppliers with a variety of levels of state ownership. And people who work for those companies' lives are even shittier. Meanwhile, the means of production and the physical infrastructure of state of so-called state capitalism was built by workers who were left with nothing but silicosis after turning places like Shenzhen from fishing villages to a city with a population of over 10 million people in less than 30 years. This is the ultimate truth of the Chinese economy, just as it is the ultimate truth of the American economy. We sell our lives for nothing. And our only reward in the end is to die amidst the wonders of a world that was never ours. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ah, welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast... It's a podcast. Uh, I'm Robert Evans, uh, and with me today is Garrison Davis and Hello. James Stout. Hello. A, a Canadian, a Britishman, and a Texan walk into a podcast. Yeah, walk yeah, into yeah. a podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is only the least two, toxic only possible. Two, only two of them can drink in a bar. Um, uh, uh, that's not true. In Canada, we can all drink in, in a bar. In Canada, it's a we free can all country. drink in a bar. Now, yeah, Garrison, yeah. a moment ago, you were holding your hand above a lit candle in a way that reminded me of G. Gordon Liddy, uh, the Nazi who masterminded the Watergate break-in, and in order to convince mm-hmm. people that he was a hard man, would regularly burn the palm of his hand on a candle while staring at them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a cool gender, guy. Isn't gender great? Haven't Just we really a cool guy. Oh, uh, G. Gordon Liddy. You don't know yeah. enough about it. We'll talk about G. Gordon Liddy. But today we're talking about something else problematic. Artificial intelligence, um, which is not a thing that exists anywhere. Uh, it is instead a terrible, terrible error uh, going back to like the 60s in ter- case of terminology. Um, w- when we talk about all of the things that people are like... B- b- you know, flipping out as AI, as ChatGPT and Stable Diffusion and fucking um, all, all these other sort of like um, different programs. They're not intelligences. They're, you know, the ChatGPT is like a large language model. Yeah. They're all essentially like bots that you train uh, to understand kind of like what the likeliest thing that what the likeliest appropriate response is to like a given prompt. Um mm-hmm. That's kind of like the 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 broadest way to explain it. It's complicated and they're, you know, very useful. But obviously, if you've been paying attention to the world right now, there's just a whole bunch of bullshit about them. And I, I think to kind of make sense of of why we're seeing some of the shit around AI that we're seeing and, and for a little bit of specificity, um, there have been like this kind of endless series of of articles around this open letter signed by a bunch of luminaries in the AI field talking about how you know, there need to be laws put in place to stop it from ending the world. You know, you've seen articles about like, oh, so X percentage of AI researchers think that it could it could destroy the planet or destroy the human race. Um, kind of most recently, the biggest article, the biggest like viral hype article was that the Pentagon had supposedly been testing uh, an AI like missile system that blew up its operator in a simulation because the operator was trying to stop it from, from firing or whatever. 
Um, it was bullshit. Yeah. Like what was that? What actually happened? Like <laughs> Vice ran with the article. It was very shocked that Vice People would do this. Flipping out about how horrifying you know our AI weapons future is, and like. Yeah, we shouldn't give AI the ability to like kill people, but that's not at all what happened. Basically, a bunch of army nerds or Air Force nerds were sitting around a table doing the D&D version of like military planning where you say, what if we did this? What kinds of things could happen if we did this system? And another guy around the table said, oh, well, if we build the system this way, it might conceivably attack its operator, you know, in order to optimize for this kind of result, which is like not scary. Like it's 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 just people talking through pot like a flowchart of possibilities around a fucking table. You don't need to worry about that. There's so many other things to worry about. New York City is blanketed in a layer of smog so thick you could cut it with a butter knife. Like don't don't flip out about AI weapons just yet, folks. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to kind of talk about why this shit is happening, and a lot of it comes down to the fact that. When um when we're talking about the aspects of like the tech industry that have an impact on outside of the tech industry, right? There's basically three jobs in big tech. One job is creating iterative improvements on existing products. These would be the teams of folks who are responsible for designing a new iPhone every year, right? Every couple of years, Lenovo puts out a new series of ThinkPads and IdeaPads. Every couple of years, you know, you get a new MacBook. Um, every couple of years, Razer puts out a new Blade. Um, this is, you know, these are the folks who kind of move along technology at a, a relatively like steady pace for, for consumer devices. Uh, and then you have the people who are responsible for kind of what you might call the moonshot products. Uh, this is a mix of the next big thing and, uh, and doomed failures. Uh, and it's often pretty hard to tell, you know, what's going to be what ahead of time. A very good example would be Back in the 90s, Apple put a bunch of resources into launching an early tablet computer called the Newton that was a fabulous disaster. And then in the mid-aughts, they put a bunch of resources into launching the iPad, which was a huge success. Um, and when when you kind of think about like the folks doing this, like working on the Moonshot products, um, uh, the most recent example would be whatever team at Apple, the team at Apple that was behind putting together these new Apple goggles, which... I don't think are going to be a wildly successful product in the way that they need it to be, like a smartphone scale success. But this is an example of like a thing that didn't exist and a bunch of people had to invent new technologies or new ways to combine technologies in order to make it exist. Um, the third kind of, of job that the tech industry has, broadly speaking, are con men, right? Um, and the state that we are in in the industry right now is that every major tech company is run by some form of con man, right? Um, Tim Cook is, you know, kind of the the least conniest of the con men among them. But like Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, is a a, a fucking flim flam artist, you know. And and you can see this with um, the huge amount of money, the like it's something like eleven billion dollars at least that Facebook pumped into this bullshit metaverse scheme that like Apple barely even talked about during their event unveiling like a, a, a headset that has VR potential in it. Um, I'm getting away from myself here. Kind of the point that I'm making is that you can often have very real products. There's actual technology going into the into the Apple glasses um, marketed by con men, flim flam artists. This is not always like a bad thing, right? Steve Jobs was a con man uh, and it worked out pretty well for him because um, it just so happened that the tech not he had a decent enough idea of what the tech was capable of, um, that it was able to kind of meet uh, the promises he was making in more or less real time. 
An example of what happens, you know, pretty spectacularly when that's not the case is what we saw with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, who started prison last week. Um, right? You've got these promises being made by the con man, and the people who are responsible for the moonshots can't make it work. Um, I'm bringing this up right now because there's a lot of folks I think who believe that the 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 like the actual potential of AI has been proven in a spectacular way because the tools that have been released are able to do cool things. Um, and I think those people are missing some key aspect, like some key things that like might cause one to think more critically about the actual potential the industry has and also might cause one to think more critically about um, how earth shattering it's all going to be. It's being taken kind of as red right now by a lot of particularly journalists and, and media analysts outside of the tech and or like outside of of you know, the dogged tech press that like, well, this is going to upend huge numbers of industries and put massive numbers of people out of work. And, you know, that may seem if you sat down in front of this chatbot and had like a mind blowing experience, that may seem credible. Um, there's not the evidence behind that yet. Um, if you actually look at the numbers behind some of these different companies and like how their usership has grown and how it's fallen off, one of the things you've seen is that a lot of these tools had this kind of massive surge peak in terms of the number of people adopting them and in terms of their profitability. You saw this with like stable diffusion, right? And then this kind of fairly rapid fall afterwards, um, not because people are like giving it up forever or whatever, but because like once you fucked around with it and generated some images or generated some stories, there's not a huge amount to do unless you're someone who's specifically going to be using this for your job. And most of the people that wanted to fuck around with with a lot of these apps didn't have long-term use cases for them. This is why, while you've got like, for example, uh, Stability, which is the company, or at least the main company behind Stable Diffusion, um, has been valued at like $4 billion, I think last it was checked, um, but their annualized revenue is only about $10 million. So that's a pretty significant gap. And it's a pretty significant gap because the actual money in AI so far isn't with the service providers, really. Like you've got some that have made in like the $100 million range, although it's not entirely clear what their margins are. Um, or what the kind of the long-term reliability of that profit is. But the vast majority of money in AI, like almost all of it, has been made by companies like NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA jumped up to become like a trillion-dollar company as a result of this because the um, the the uh, like hardware needs of these uh, products are so intense. Um, and obviously that shows there's money here for somebody, but the fact that like a shitload of people got curious about these apps and use them in quick succession and then kind of dropped off is an evidence that like we're seeing entire industries replaced as much of it as, as it is evidence that like a lot of people thought this was interesting briefly. Um, and so I, I think kind of when you look at the data, one of the things this suggests is that we're heading towards a point in AI and I think we're probably going to hit it within the next six months to a year that is is broadly referred to as like the trough of disappointment. Um, and this is what happens when kind of the promises of a new technology that are being made by the hype men or con men, as I tend to call them, meet with like the actual reality of its execution, um, which in some areas is going to be significant. There are places, I think, medical research may be one of them. We'll talk about that in a bit, 
where a lot of the promises people are making about AI uh, will be fairly quickly realized. And then there are areas where it won't be. Uh, I think content generation is one of those things. Um, but yeah, that, so that's that's kind of like what I'm seeing when I'm looking at the broad strokes of of where this technology is here and kind of the gap between how people are talking about it and and what we're actually seeing in terms of monetization. I want to talk a little bit now about kind of one of the guys I would call him kind of a con man who's been a big driver of of the current AI push. Uh, he's a dude named Ahmad Mostak, um, and he's the founder of Stable Diffusion, right? Which is a text to image generator that was kind of like before ChatGPT hit. This was like the first really, really big mainstream AI thing. ChatGPT was was a lot larger, but um, Stable Diffusion came first and you know was critical behind among other things a lot of the, the silliest nft bullshit um and he's he's a really uh interesting dude like if you look at kind of his own claims about his background uh he says that he's got an oxford master's degree that he was like Ooh. the behind an award-winning hedge fund uh that he like worked for the united nations in a really important capacity um and also that he obviously founded this this ai bot um, none of that's true. Uh, he has a bachelor's <laughs> degree from Oxford, not a master's degree. He did. Well, that's uh, what he's playing off a thing that happens there, where like you can you you can get uh, if you have a BA Oxen, you can you can get it to be an MA. It doesn't mean you did mm-hmm. a master's. It, it's just uh, the wealthy people flex. Yeah, like, it, it's it's not a master's degree. You shouldn't call it that. If you're calling it that, you're taking the piss. Yeah, yeah, he's taking the piss knowing no one's going to call him on it or at least knowing mm-hmm. that people wouldn't like at large like loudly enough for it to matter for him. Yeah. Um yeah. he hasn't worked with the UN uh in quite some time uh and never did in a major capacity. He did run a hedge fund uh that was successful in its first year but then got shut down in its second year because he lost everybody's money. <laughs> um so like Amazing. this is this is but you see with this guy if you go through his like history, he's like he's like chasing hedge funds in the early aughts. Um, he first gets in with stable diffusion after COVID and he's kind of like billing it as this is going to help with like research into trying to like, you know, fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and then he kind of pivots to like, oh, this is a great way to like make NFTs and shit. You know, when that <laughs> hit, like he's, he's just sort of like chasing where the money is, yeah. um, any way he kind of can. Um, and he's not, uh, by the way, he's not the guy who wrote any of the source code for this that was done by like a group of researchers and he, you know, he essentially like acquired it. Which is usually what happens here. Now, none of this has stopped him from getting $100 million or so in investments uh, from various venture partners. Um, It hasn't stopped his company from getting this massive violation. It hasn't stopped the White House from inviting him to uh, talk as part of like a federal AI safety initiative. Um, But it is one of those like when I, I kind of look into this guy and kind of the gap between his claims and what's actually happened and the claims that are are being made about the value of his company and what it's actually like proved to be worth so far. I think a lot about Sam Bankman-Fried because um, a lot of like the early writing around this guy was similar uh, and a lot of the kind of shit that he's claiming is is similar. And yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if this is a case where, because Bankman-Fried is one of these people who, like Elizabeth Holmes, I think backed the wrong technology because it's fine in Silicon Valley, it's fine, generally speaking, in capitalism to lie about what a product can do if you can, you know, fake it till you make it. Uh, and and maybe AI is there. He may have, this guy may have like made a good bet as to the future. 
but it, that's kind of far from certain yet. And it's it's just really clear how much of this industry is being built on or is being built by how much of like the people running sort of these AI companies are dudes who managed one way or another, either through access to VC funding or kind of like, um, you know, just being in the right place at the right time to jump in on the bandwagon in the hopes that they'll be able to cash out very, very quickly. I found a good quote from a Forbes article talking about like a big part of why guys like Mustak um, are so interested in AI right now from a financial perspective. Um, and this is true, not just this was true about like crypto before, but AI, because there's more to the technology, um, this is kind of even more so uh, uh, valid. Quote, venture capitalists historically spend months performing due diligence, a process that involves analyzing the market, vetting the founder, and speaking to customers to check for red flags before investing in a startup. But start to finish, Mustak told Forbes, he needed just six days to secure $100 million from leading investment Oof. firms Kochu and Lightspeed once Stable Diffusion went viral. The extent of due diligence that the firms performed is unclear given the speed of the investment. The investment thesis we had is that we don't know exactly what all the use cases will be, but we know that this technology is truly transformative and has reached a tipping point in terms of what it can do, Gaurav Gupta, the Lightspeed partner who led the investment, told Forbes in a January interview. So again, they're, they're being like, yeah, we're pumping tens of million dollars of dollars into this. We don't know how it'll make money. It just seems so impressive that it has to be profitable. Now, that line is particularly funny, maybe the wrong word, uh, when like compared alongside this paragraph from later in the article. In an open letter last September, Democratic Representative Anna Eshoo urged action in Washington against the open-source nature of stable diffusion. The model, she wrote, had been used to generate images of violently beaten Asian women and pornography, some of which portrays real people. Bashara said new versions of stable diffusion filtered data for potentially unsafe content, helping to prevent users from generating harmful images in the first place. So it's like, uh, uh, part of what's happening here is you've got this thing that seems really impressive, and that is to some extent because it's able to like remix stuff that exists in a way that you haven't done automatically before. Um, but all of these kind of valuations are based, number one, on ignoring the problems with monetizing this stuff, including like the still very much unsorted nature of how copyright's going to affect this, and also like the question of is this really worth that much money? Like is is this actually is being able to generate kind of weird slightly off-putting ai images a a a, a huge business like how much of cuz like from where i'm seeing it one of two things is possible number 1 this replaces all art everywhere and so there's a shitload of money in it or number 2 mm -hmm. this remains a way that like low quality websites and like amazon dropship uh, scammers who are like putting up fake books on on Kindle and whatnot to trick people using keywords like that it this is just like a way to fill that shit out um like I don't see a whole lot of room in the middle there you know maybe I'm I'm being like overly pessimistic there but that's 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 where I'm sitting I mean some of the models we've seen used is selling like su subscription packs to, for like access to these tools and access to use them for like commercial yeah. reasons um other thing we could see is just like corporations selling to other corporations, like base mm -hmm. having Disney and Warner Brothers be able to use this to generate concept art. And now they, they don't need to pay concept artists. And instead, they just have like pretty, pretty, uh, pretty like nicely curated tools for them to generate this type of uh, 
yeah ai image i think those those are kind of two of the biggest use cases that at least i'm seeing right now from slightly more on like the creative filmmaking art side of things um because i mean i don't think it's going to replace all all no. art. I think n- nobody, <laughs> nobody is actually uh, is is actually thinking this is just going to replace all all art. Just like photography did not replace all art. It just it it changes the paradigm. And because this this tool does seem like specifically useful for for the for the way that we're seeing like corporations make the same movie every five years. Like it's all it's 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 all built on the, all of the same stuff. And I think that well, that's yeah. how a lot of a lot of it's going to get used. It's going to be a, a lot of weird scam artists people just messing around for fun and then people not paying like illustrators as much (laughs) like yeah and i think that's kind of like i see this being adopted widely but that's not the same as it like being a huge success like right now i'm looking at an article that's estimating the current value of ai in the u.s is at 100 billion dollars and that by 2030 it'll be worth 2 trillion u.s dollars and it's like I don't know, man. Like, is I mean, is the AI replacing... is more than just like mid-journey image creation, right? There is, sure. there's like like OpenAI and ChatGPT, and yeah. we, like AI is in everything we use now. Like, like, yeah. like AI is in your smartphone. AI is going to be in your refrigerator soon. So, like, it, it, it's not just yeah. image generation by any means. That kind of yeah. gets to what I'm saying because that's that's when you look at AI as a tool is more of like a paintbrush than a painter is a tool that will like augment or be used in because I think a lot a number of times it may be used in a way that makes the product worse in a lot of existing technologies well that's really different from kind of number one the 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 doom and gloom like this is a, a an intelligence on its own that could like overtake humanity I think the worry is more like this could make get adopted on such a large scale that it like makes a lot of shit worse like the, my biggest fear with AI is that it kind of hypercharges the SEO industry and the way that yeah. that has worked to destroy search and destroy so much of internet content? Yeah. I think that is very possible. Like, if I look at ChatGPT, like, I don't think that's going to be writing features for Rolling Stone anytime soon. No. But what it can probably do, because SEO max copy is derivative, right? Like, like it, it's yeah. predictable, it's derivative, it's based on other stuff. It's supposed to be. Yeah, and so it can do that SEO max copy and some of that ad copy like very well, and and yeah, either really fuck up searches, which is quite possible, and also make the lowest kind of acceptable tier of that kind of copy what it can generate, and sort of because you can just shove that copy in front of people with SEO max and then have shitty ad copy written by ChatGPT, like that will change how certainly how we buy stuff on the internet right but also how we read news etc yeah absolutely um, and i already see that like uh i've written for some big publications who have like essentially a side do people know what content driven commerce is oh yeah 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 so it's it's why every article about stuff is now the best 5x right yeah like the why they have they have affiliate links and the the publication Mm -hmm. will profit if you buy stuff after clicking the link yeah yeah so like in the probably 2016 era uh all of the stuff i so I, i did a lot of previously outdoor journalism right writing about climbing gear bikes that kind of thing uh and like that whole industry went to just afcom like just affiliate links and they kind of trashed any quality review stuff and i can see like a similar change to that happening with this right where where people 
we'll we'll just chase that SEO max copy and that will become the new cool thing to do and like a lot of outlets will yeah. suffer as a result. But that's not the like earth shattering change that people are talking about on on twitter.com or whatever. Well, one thing I saw recently is that more and more students are just using ChatGPT to look up information like as opposed yeah. to like as, as, opposed as opposed to wikipedia as opposed to wikipedia or as opposed to google if they have a question they'll ask chat gpt which has a few problems but as soon as you start getting into how much of the chat gpt output is just ai hallucinations yeah where it's not yeah. actual information which is honest that's something i should just write my own thing on in the future yeah. um but yeah it's just it's, it's a really weird problem uh, that's really interesting that the the problem of like because i think it's it's very clear to me at this point that AI is a, a more user-friendly search experience than a search engine, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can talk to it like a person and explain what you need explained. That doesn't mean it's a better option in terms of it provides people with information more effectively, that it, it that it actually tells them what they want to know as well. But it's like easier and and maybe like less uh, 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 kind of... um an imposing task to like ask an AI a question than it is to ask like a search and to, to especially as, as much worse as Google has gotten lately. Like one of the things that I found interesting as I was kind of doing digging for this, I was looking at some AI articles that were published in like 2019, 2020, 2021. This is before the big, you know, AI um, push that like we're currently all in the middle of before chat GPT, you know, got its, its widespread release. And it was talking with like some people from Google who were like, yeah, we really see AI like supercharging our search results. You know, there's a lot of potential and like its ability to help people with search. And I'm thinking about in 2020, 2019, Google was a really useful tool and it's a shit show now. Like it's filled with ads, like search results have gotten markedly worse. Everyone who uses Google as part of their job will tell you that it's gotten like significantly worse in the recent uh, past. And like, I, uh, uh, I, I that's kind of like the the thing that I see being more of a worry, and it, it's one of those things. It's like on one hand, in the hype machine, you have like AI could become like our new god king uh, and destroy us all, and the other like AI is going to like you know it, it create all. There's all, all this vague talk about well, it could be giving people the tools to create more art than ever before, um, to you know make more good things faster and. I kind of feel like, well, what if neither of those things happens, which I, and it just sort of allows us to continue making the internet worse for everybody at a, at a more rapid pace. Like yeah. what, what if that's the primary thing that we notice about AI as consumers? Um, it's probably a reasonable assumption. I think Garrison's point was good though, when they said that like bigger companies will buy, like companies will just exist to get bought, right? Which is the yeah. thing that's happened in tech for decades because like it can't fundamentally change things. Like if AI is another means of production, right? If we mm-hmm. want to be like a grossly materialist, um, it, if AI is another means of production, it's a tool for making things. If the same people own it and benefit from it, then like it, it is, it's incapable of fundamentally changing our material yeah. conditions, right? It just becomes another way and for them to yeah, churn out shit and say that like this is fine this is what you'll get you know like churn out shit content on the internet or whatever it might be and likewise if ai is primarily like if it gets caught in this kind of seo loop where it exists primarily to help advertise and sell products whether it's as a search engine or 
generating mass content, you know, for for yeah. like the internet that's sort of optimized to to appear higher in search results. Um, and it's also being trained on that. Is there a point at which it kind of starts to lobotomize itself where it's just recycling <laughs> yeah. shit other AI has written? Yeah, um, which also seems kind of inevitable with that. This is one of those things. So one of the more famous moments in like recent AI research is um, this uh, Google researcher, Timnit Gebru, um, who no longer works at Google, um, and some other very smart people put together a paper that like was, I think, generally regarded by AI folks as kind of middle of the road, but it 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 kind of it developed the term stochastic parrot, which is what people know it for as sort of trying to describe what these quote unquote AIs do in a way that's better than an AI. Cause like part of what it was saying is that like, we have to look at this as kind of like a parrot that if you say enough like words around it, including enough like racial slurs, it'll start repeating a bunch of toxic shit. It doesn't know what it's doing. It doesn't have intention. It's just kind of like repeating this stuff because that's what's been fed into it. But one of the things that point out in that paper is that like when you have an AI, when you have one of these LLMs trained on too large of a model, it becomes number one, kind of impossible to avoid that toxic stuff, but it also reduces the utility of, of the AI in a lot of ways, because like when you have so much data going in, it's very difficult um, for the humans to kind of tell how competent it is. This is why stuff like chat GPT involves so much human training, why they had hundreds of people spending tens of thousands of man hours, like going through responses to tell if they made sense. Because when you've got, like, it's one thing if you're like using an, if you're, for example, training an AI on a bunch of different like medical data to try to determine patterns in like uh, antibiotic research, right? Which is a thing that that LLMs have been like shown to be, have, have some early utility in is like kind of helping to identify new paths for like antibiotics research. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like we've got a lot of data, but it's also a really focused kind of data, right? We're not like training these things on like all of, you know, Wikipedia and, and, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, of fan fiction stories about Kirk and Mulder fucking each other um, during some sort of like exile file, Star Trek crossover. Um, We're, we're, we're using a fairly focused data set, um, to try and analyze it in a, a manner more efficiently than people are simply capable of. That's a lot more useful in terms of getting good data than, you know, just training it on half a trillion different things out there, a lot of which are going to be lies. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I I found that interesting. It's kind of worth noting that like uh, Gebru and a number of other people who were responsible for that got uh, forced out by Google and kind of attacked by the industry. Um, Because I think there's a desperation. And I I talked about this in that episode I did last year, kind of about the the fundamental emptiness at the core of the modern tech industry. But I think there's this desperation on like, we, we have to find the new thing, the thing that's going to be as big as social media was, the thing that's going to deliver the kind of stock market returns that social media did. Um, and that doesn't exist yet. And AI is the, the after especially uh, several years of disasters with crypto and diminishing returns in social media and uh, honestly diminishing returns in like traditional tech because shit like smartphones have reached kind of a point of saturation, right? You can make money. So obviously, like you can make money selling smartphones, but you can't show exponential growth, right? There's just not that many people who need new ones. Yeah. Anyway.
yeah, I think there's, I, I feel some desperation here. I wanted to kind of close by reading you all. I found a, a very funny article in the Financial Times that was about the potential that um, the head of Europe's biggest media group, Bertelsmann, um, sees for generative AI. Um, and yeah, it, it interviewed a couple of people, including a guy, Thomas Rabe, who works, uh, um, is the chief executive of the German business that owns Penguin Random House. Um, and one of the things that he says in this is basically like, I think this is, you know, uh, uh, going to be super great for authors. Um, you know, there's a potential for copyright infringement problems, but really like it would allow you to feed your own work into an AI, um, and then produce much more content than you were ever able to put, able to put out before. Like his exact quote is, it's, if it's your content for which you own the copyright and then you use it to train the software, you can in theory generate content like never before. Um, which I think is, yeah, a fundamental, <laughs> like, you know, it, I, I, I don't actually even think it's going to be possible to like train them on airport novels. Like you've got like James Patterson and other guys who they're not, they don't write their own books anymore. They have like a team of ghostwriters, but like having gone through a lot of AI stories, they're not books. Like they're not capable of writing books. They're yeah. capable of like producing text and producing pieces of books that human beings can edit laboriously into something that might look like a book. But the use in that is not like filling up airports with kind of mid-grade fiction, because I think that's even beyond these models. It's like tricking people on Amazon. Um, there was a really funny quote in this article, though, um, where at the end of it, um, uh, Rabe is like, I asked ChatGPT what the impact of ChatGPT or generative AI is on publishing. It prepared a phenomenal text. Frankly, it was very detailed and to the point. Uh, which he then uh, presented at a staff event. So there is kind of evidence that a uh, CEO jobs could be pretty easily replaced by this. Like <laughs> so, if you don't so actually true. have to know actually, how to yeah, do yeah, anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> comrade ChatGPT, we we agree. Uh, it's a spinning Jenny for bosses. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's what I've got right now. We have a uh, we've been doing some research, and we'll have an article out on one of the more unsettling little side industries that I think AI is going to create. Mm -hmm. Um, which is like scam children's books uh, that exist to make con men on the internet money and poison the minds of little kids. Uh, but but we'll get that Good. to you next week. Um, yeah, felt like it was worth coming back to this subject because it, it I don't know, it, it's the most apocalyptic thing people in the media are talking about in a day in which like the entire Northeast is blanketed in poison smoke, <laughs> yeah. which seems bad. Yeah. Well, people are talking about that now because they all live in New York and they're freaking yeah. the fuck out. But uh, yeah, previous to this. Yeah. Anyway. Not been an issue. Go to hell. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone. It's just me, James, again today, and I'm joined by Ruth Kinner, who's going to introduce herself shortly. And we're discussing the concept of mutual aid and trying to sort of cast that in a broader perspective. We talk a lot about mutual aid, but we we don't talk often about what it is and what it means and, and how it's been happening for a very long time. So, Ruth, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us how yes. you think it's relevant? Yeah, thank you, James. So my name is Ruth Kinner and I work at Loughborough University in the UK. Um, Loughborough's halfway between Nottingham and Leicester in the East Midlands. <laughs> and uh, I'm a political theorist and historian of ideas and I specialise in anarchist political thought. And one of the people I've spent probably most time looking at is, is Peter Kropotkin. And uh, I've written about Kropotkin's um, life and work. Uh, I'm also the editor of, of the journal Anarchist Studies, and I'm a member at Loughborough University of the Anarchism Research Group. Oh, lovely. Yeah, that's a very, very uh, appropriate CV for this. And um, so can we start off by explaining, because I think people hear mutual aid sort of thrown about a lot, and they know that it's people helping people. But what what would you define it as? What would be a useful definition for people to work off? So... Um, mutual aid is about uh, people helping people, but I think Kropotkin's argument, or the you know the the way that anarch- that anarchists tend to think about mutual aid, is that it's a a, a way of describing uh, a relationship uh, that can be encouraged or discouraged according to the ways in which we organise our our social relationships. So mutual aid is a kind of a, a response that we all have. Uh, to people when it's based on empathy, I guess. Uh, but it's something that we can um, dampen, I suppose, if we divorce ourselves from uh, from other people in, in our everyday lives. And, and particularly if we um, tend to think that people's well-being is the concern 
of others uh, rather than something which is a, a collective concern of, of of all of us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's really excellent because it it's very easy, especially if you're living under under sort of capitalism as it exists today, to divorce yourself from your empathy or I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but to to help other people. Like we see that all the time, and I think one area where we've seen that increasingly, certainly in the two countries that we're sitting in is with this like oh, just bizarre I, I, I don't want to like pathologize it but this just deeply uh untasteful lack of empathy for refugees and people seeking asylum and so i wanted to sort of start with the example of the lifeboats in the uk and because i think they're great they pop up in in kropotkin they've been around for a very long time and they were at least when I was living in the UK, a very cherished institution that, that people supported. And can you explain a little bit about how they operate within the within that sort of mutual aid lens? Yeah, so um, the Lifeboat Association was was prompted by, it's called an appeal to the British nation. It was published <laughs> in 1825 by this guy called William Hillary. Um, and what Hillary wanted to do was to support uh, the foundation of a kind of national institution that was going to help the victims of shipwrecks. Yeah. And he couched this project actually as quite a sort of in nationalistic terms, I suppose, or in patriotic terms, as sort of part of uh, the duty that the British people would have as one of the great seafaring nations. Um, but what it did was that it, it established the skeleton, if you like, or it, it produced the sort of the foundation for the Lifeboat Association, which is what we know now, yeah. which is basically a voluntary organisation run by volunteers, funded by the public, uh, with a with a remit to, to help anybody who is in distress at sea. And I guess although it was sort of um, the original idea of the Lifeboat Association came from this sort of rather patriotic uh, seafaring tradition, um, Hillary's idea was that, that, that once you set up these uh, organisations locally uh, on the coast, then actually they could be replicated. So he did have a sort of internationalist perspective. He thought that these, these things okay. would be, yeah. would mushroom, you know, across the globe and that we would have lifeboat associations everywhere. I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly <laughs> the lifeboat association uh, is still alive and well uh, in the UK and, and it does exactly what he wanted it to do. He, it, it's, it's, um, looks after people in distress at sea without fear or favour. And at, it's an example of mutual aid, I guess, because the people who do this um, as volunteers are always putting themselves at, at risk of um, peril or, or drowning, if you like, in order to, to try and preserve the lives of others. Yeah. It, and it's a very, at least from my memory, an institution that, that I've never really heard of anyone having negative opinions about lifeboats until relatively recently. Like there was always a lifeboat shaped thing that you could put money in like a donation box and, and people just put money in it and no one was like oh i don't like the lifeboats like um but recently i suppose they've come under fire from britain first and um, for I, th I think they would phrase it as like encouraging people to take the risk of, of traveling on small boats to the united kingdom to claim asylum uh, and can you characterize I, I don't want you to characterize that attack because it, it's it's relatively easy to characterize and it's it's you know it, it doesn't need much explaining it's stupid but uh the response to that like because i think it has been quite it, it's easy for people in america to see britain as like a parochial little island full of turfs but um i think actually most people were still like most people were pretty i guess offended by the thought that we'd allow people to drown rather than 
coming to our country, right, to claim asylum. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it was astonishing, actually, um, or I think it astonished people that that the Lifeboat Association would be politicised in the way that that was mm-hmm. that was attempted by the right. Um, the yeah. whole idea of of of, <laughs> of of picking and choosing who one would rescue at sea is is simply preposterous. And as you say, I yeah. mean, you know, the Lifeboat Association is is um, widely supported. I mean, you tend to see um, offices of the Lifeboat Association at seasides. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, you know, the environment is yeah. the, the holiday environment. It's the beach environment. Um, it's part of being together uh, in a place which is enjoyed by people together, um, but which also has its risks. And I mean, the first time I think I, you know, I came across the Lifeboat Association was, um, was actually through an appeal that was uh, made through a, a very popular and well-known BBC television program for children, which was called Blue Peter. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, they funded a boat uh, by asking kids to send in milk bottle tops, uh, which could be <laughs> sort of melted yeah. down and turned into aluminium or whatever it was. And then, you know, this is how they funded a lifeboat. I mean, so this, this you know, lifeboats are deeply rooted, I think. I mean, the support for lifeboats are deeply rooted in in people's psyche in this country. And um, and as I say, I think it was uh, uh, it was interesting, I guess, that that these these calls from the right, that the Lifeboat Association was somehow doing wrong in looking after migrant boats. I mean, the small boats, really vulnerable dinghies that were being sailed across the channel. Um, I, I just think the the um, it gained absolutely no traction uh, yeah. because it, it simply didn't speak to people's public perception or, 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 or deeply held perceptions, if you like, of the role of this association. Yeah, and there's been a really significant campaign to dehumanise uh, migrants in the UK, like even perhaps to a degree greater than we've seen in, in much of the US, although there's like complete bipartisan consensus that we should criminalize people coming here in, in the United States too. And like I spent, people will have heard that I spent like the last week driving along the border, seeing little children uh, like forced to, to be held in the desert with no shade and no water. Like it's, it's also very brutal here, but I think it says something that that's an institution that looks like that we, that was a line that wasn't, crossable i guess by the right and this demonization of migrants so we having established that this is a very cherished and important institution can we talk about how mutual aid is something that because i think it, it can seem understandably to people who have been educated in the sort of neoliberal consensus that certainly um is, is very common in schools and universities in in both of our countries how this has in fact been like part of human history for as long as, as people have been living in societies and how it's a natural human response to, to want to do this. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think this takes us back to, to Kropotkin's um, mm-hmm. uh, theorization, if you like, of mutual yeah. aid. So, I mean, talking about sort of, you know, our neoliberal culture, I mean, Kropotkin's writing at a time where you have a similar kind of um individualism being stoked um, and it's being stoked particularly through uh, a notion of, of, of social Darwinism. So the mm-hmm. idea that uh, uh, fitness is linked to or that the survival is linked to, to individual fitness and that uh, competition is the is the basic rule of life and that mm-hmm. therefore not only um, individuals but states as well uh, should be 
you know, pitting themselves against each other in order to, to gain advantage and to, to secure their own well-being. And Kropotkin mm -hmm. wanted to sort of challenge this argument. And so the way he did it was to say two things. One, that, that biological fitness is not linked to competition. It's actually linked to cooperation. So uh, individuals in any species cannot survive unless they have uh, support from, from, from others in their species. I mean, it's simply, it's, you know, that's, that's how biology works. Yeah. So whatever advantage that individuals might, might you know, um, acquire, um, actually their well-being depends on the cooperation or the, 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 the collective practices that they have with others. So he recognised that there was interspecies competition, but he said basically within species, uh, survival is based on cooperation. And from that, he then said, you know, um, one of the things that we can learn from this, from this sort of re -under, or from this sort of uh, review of, of social Darwinism, is is to uh, to think about how we can encourage uh, cooperation as a moral value. Um, and he said, you know, the way that we, uh, that, because that's a good thing. Surely, it's 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 uh, you know, if yeah. we're biologically attuned to cooperate, then why don't we make this a principle of our of our lives? And he said that the way that we should do this is by um, uh, configuring our social arrangements or our environments, if you like, in ways that enabled us to to see that we were um, we were affected by the same sorts of problems, that we had affinities with each other, that there was a basic relationship that we had with each other, not only with family members and friends, but with strangers too. Uh, and that once we could understand that, then actually we could sort of organise our social lives in, in ways that were supportive of others when they were in positions of need or when they were in situations of need. Yeah. So how would one go about doing that? Because it can seem... I, look, where I live, um, thousands of people live on the street, right? And I can watch people every day walk past people who just need a little bit of help and not give it to them. And it can be very disheartening. And so how do we begin to organize in a way that yeah, recognizes our sort of mutual dependence? So, I mean, part of the argument, I think, is that um, people will fill the gaps when they see that others mm -hmm. are in need and that's exactly what the lifeboat association does and that's exactly yeah. what happened during the pandemic for example so yeah. uh, you know not surprisingly uh, one of the things that that happened in the the first weeks of the pandemic was the mushrooming of groups that called themselves mutual aid societies yeah. mutual aid associations and they were networked i mean somebody set up a website so that you know people could see exactly where these groups were they were networked in the uk i think there were some relationships that were even transatlantic so part of the argument is that you don't have to plan this and in fact mutual aid is, is an unplanned, is best thought of as, as an unplanned response. But I guess the other thing is, um, or the question that, that, that mutual aid begs is that, you know, if people get together in times you know, to, to fill the gaps, if you like, mm -hmm. to, to provide support for people who are in need, then how do they sustain those organisations mm -hmm. over periods of time uh, without suffering, burnout and, and all the rest of it? And I think that really then depends on um, you know, sort of establishing, I guess, I mean, you know, that, that's, again, why we should take um, some heart, I think, from the Lifeboat Association. It's yeah. been going a long time. It yeah. is possible to do these things, but it's difficult. Uh, and it does require that you learn how to cooperate with people who you might not otherwise work with, you might not otherwise think you have anything uh, in common with, but where you find that common ground in order to, to undertake practical activities 
uh, in collaboration with each other. Yeah, I think that's very um, prescient. I'm always like, in 2018, I don't know if, if you were familiar with this, but in, in the southern border of the United States, we had a large group of migrants coming here from Central America who became like a a sort of talking point in the midterms um, through no fault of their own, right? And they were held at the US border and then tear gassed from the, uh, from the mm-hmm. Tommy Hilfiger discount store in, in San Diego. Um, and I was really impressed with, like, I was there trying to help with my friends and and, and sort of trying to do anarchist things. But also there, there were people who were older ladies from churches and people from mm-hmm. mosques and people from synagogues and, and very, very much willing to work together and, you know, like, you know, we'd go to Costco together and spend thousands and thousands on water and, and nappies for babies and such. But like, I think getting past that initial sort of, I'm not a person who works with people who go to church to like, well, this person wants to help and so do I, was what allowed yeah. that to happen. Can you perhaps think of other examples that people, I th- I'm interested in things like the lifeboats, which people might not see through the lens of mutual aid. Uh, because they're such established institutions that they there's an assumption i think a lot of people probably think that there's some kind of state involvement with the lifeboats right mm-hmm. and the same with lots of um sort of the uh the societies that exist to prevent cruelty to animals and children and that kind of thing right there's those aren't state funded either in the uk um can you think of other examples of mutual aid that people might have sort of not realized are entirely driven by society and not the state well i suppose the i mean the best uh, or one of the best examples mm. recently in the US context is the establishment of the Common Ground Collective after um, Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the aid that first went into to the the people who were stricken by Katrina was not provided by uh, the state. In fact, you know that came a lot later. Yes. Um, but it was provided by people who you know by by groups of people who um, who thought that they you know they could um, offer medical support or. Uh, set up systems of, uh, you know, or help set up systems of, of, of basic supply and rescue, um, and 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 that's exactly what happened. And and the Common Ground Collective was established as a result of it. Uh, I mean, you find this sort of thing. I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's fairly usual in in times of you know sudden emergency and crisis that actually the people who who do the hands on work yeah. of actually taking people off off you know the the, the house the, the roofs of, of of flooded houses and all the rest mm. of it these are local people typically yeah. uh they're they're not uh the agencies who who often you know take a lot of time to get there i mean the other examples i think in the american context uh, again which are uh, often rooted around um church groups but certainly a lot of um Black people's organisations, which, you know, who couldn't, you know, where they couldn't access uh, support services, uh, set up mutual aid societies, because that was the, if you like, the only alternative that they would have in order to provide, um, you know, sort of uh, clubs for their kids and um, breakfast clubs and uh, any kind of welfare at all. Uh, that that was the that was the root of it. The other example, I mean, Kropotkin looks at. I mean, these are nineteenth century nineteenth century mm-hmm. example, uh, which is sort of something that's later absorbed by the state. Uh, are the, um, uh, the 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 insurance uh, arrangements that were that were made by uh, miners yeah. uh, to, to to look after uh, those who were injured down the mines and their families in the event of their death. Uh, so you know they were setting up their own um, contra- systems of contribution to ensure that those families would be provided for 
uh, if the, if the worst came to the worst, and it, you know, eventually this gets taken up by the state and it's sold back to you as national insurance. Uh, but, yeah. but these systems are, you know, they're established essentially by local people um, for their own benefits. Yeah, perhaps we ought to talk about that because there's a lot of these uh, spontaneous societal things, especially in the UK, that are, that are co-opted by the state and then sold back to us, and then gradually stripped away of, of the, the the very essence of what they're supposed to be. Right, the National Health Service being another example. Um, can you talk about the danger of that kind of state? Maybe danger is the wrong word, but there, there can be a state capture of mutual aid efforts, which, which can sometimes one might argue always like strip them of the essence of what they are. Is that fair to say? Well, it certainly changes. The, it, well, it, I mean, so so state welfare changes the relationships that that people have uh, yeah. to those institutions and and. Uh, so in one sense, it's, it alleviates the burden of, of, of running those institutions. But in the, on, on the other hand, it, it does two things, I think. One is that it, uh, it tends to encourage the idea that um, looking after each other is somebody else's responsibility. Yes. So actually, it, it diminishes or it disincentivizes the sort of the, um, that, that uh, stimulus to, to help each other directly. So mutual aid is a kind of direct action, if you like. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, once we give these these processes over to the state, then actually we start to to see people in different in in different ways. So we mm-hmm. do start to to get the language of scrounging uh, or of you know idleness, uh, deserving, undeserving, poor. All of those things come from the idea that we're paying into an institution and not necessarily. Um, being guaranteed that we're getting value for money. So we, we start to see the institution slightly differently. And I think the other thing is that um, uh, the, I mean, the worry, I guess, of, of, of that sort of co-optation is that it's, it conceals the other things that the, that the state does. So welfare is the last thing, if you like, that, that states assume as a responsibility. Um, and it's, and it's, uh, provides a gloss, if you like, on the the law and order uh, function <laughs> that the yes. state serves, uh, and and somehow sort of makes the state look a bit friendlier mm-hmm. uh, than perhaps we should think it is. And I mean, this, you know, when the uh, I suppose that I mean the term that was used in the in the British context in the in the in the immediate post-war period was not the, the welfare state; it was the warfare state, because the idea was that the introduction of welfare. Um, which starts really in, in after the after the Second World War, yeah. concealed uh, the violence that the state was was otherwise perpetuating elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's very. It's something we should consider very strongly when we're looking at these things, right? I think it also strips the like the person to person aspect of mutual aid from mutual aid, like the uh, like certainly the most. Uh, common sort of mutual aid responses I've been part of uh, uh, to health crises and then to and along the border. And part of what makes that very meaningful is people saying like, you know, this is a, this is a line between two states, but it's not a line between two people or two communities, yep. right? And you are welcome because I am of this community and I want you to come here, which you do not get when, uh, you know, there's a man in green combat pants throwing uh, MREs from the back of a pickup truck. Like that doesn't, 
that's right and and but equally i suppose that i mean that's the other thing i mean that's that's kind of what i was trying to get at that you know once you have a uh, once you have st state welfare you have concepts of of access through citizenship and that yes. reinforces the idea that there's a there's a right of access and then there's a um uh, there's an exclusion uh, that yeah. necessarily follows from that and so you know the, the relationship becomes much more transactional um rather than um which is the way that the mutual aid is is couched in in the anarchist uh, lexicon, it, you know, it's 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 driven by by altruism, um, and 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 giving without um, without the expectation of reward. Yes, yeah, I think that's very important. It it, it doesn't imply a power or an expectation of sort of reciprocity. It, it's and it yeah. but it um I forget exactly where I read this. I'm terrible at these things, but like. It, I, I guess it, you don't do it in a selfish sense, but it benefits you as as well as the person you are giving to, like, in because those people are part of your community. Is that fair? And like, you shouldn't be complete if people are suffering, like, right next to you. Yeah. So I suppose there's a sort of there's a there's an argument to say that um, I mean that that comes from the from the notion of 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 um, recasting what it is to to be an individual so you know mm -hmm. your 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 personal enrichment actually relies on the relationships that you can cultivate with other people so yes. it, you know the 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 quality of those relationships is actually something that of course benefits you but i think the i mean um, one of the things Kropotkin tells his story yeah. about um uh, a child drowning in a river yeah and he imagines three people standing on the riverbank one of them's a religious believer um the second one is he calls an ordinary bourgeois a utilitarian yeah. and the third one he doesn't describe at all and he says you know what do the what happens when they see this child in the river and he says well the religious person is wondering you know um i should go and save the the child because i'll i'll reap my reward in heaven uh, and the utilitarian is thinking you know if i ch if i save this child then i'm going to feel really good about myself and so therefore i should do it yeah. and while they're while they're sort of going through that process of reasoning the third person has just jumped in and, and saved the child um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that's mutual aid <laughs> yeah yes i think that's very good yeah it comes from yeah it, it does yeah, it doesn't need to be like overly theorized i suppose yeah and it really yeah. doesn't like i've never i think the, the construction of mutual aid is important because it allows us to join the dots across the world and across time um, and and to see the relationship with the state but it doesn't need you don't need to have read kropotkin to to like, like i know a big it sprung up here a lot in the pandemic too, right? Like free shops and um, like certainly for older people or people who are immunocompromised. I remember breaking thousands of loaves of bread uh, from the, a pizza shop down the street wasn't able to open. So they would bring me flour and I would make bread and we would take it to people. And uh, things like that were very spontaneous and didn't particularly need like theorizing in terms of Kropotkin. But sadly, they sort of, we lost a lot of that with the... Uh, you know, with the reduction in, in in the severity of the pandemic, I guess, and I think it's important to remember that that was a natural response and one that we should cultivate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, I mean, there were all sorts of things that were going on here. I mean, there were people who were sewing up scrubs for health workers. Yeah, delivering lunches to health workers. Uh, you know, as well as just you know the the checking on the neighbours, making sure that people were okay. Um, so yeah i mean it took you know multiple different forms and yeah i mean it, it is difficult because you know once real life as it were sort of returned yeah. and 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 the and the lockdowns were um relaxed 
you know, people have all kinds of other demands on their time, and mm-hmm. uh, and it and and again, we sort of then get used to to thinking that you know somebody else is going to pick up the pieces now. Yeah, um, yeah. I do think that that's part of that lockdown nostalgia, which is, which is bizarrely already occurring. Uh, like, like three years down the line, right? People look back and think, "Oh, well, it wasn't that bad." And, and like, obviously, thousands of people died. That, that we shouldn't overlook that, but. If part of what people are looking back on is that sense of community, which I think so many of us lack. The, the alienation yeah. is very real for a lot of us. And so those mutual aid groups or WhatsApp groups and things gave people a real sense of belonging. I think that's the same. A lot of people felt that way in 2020. For Obviously, there, were, there was an uprising in the United States, which gave people a sense of purpose, which maybe they, they're mm. not feeling anymore. If people are interested in, I guess, it's learning and there's doing, and they can be distinct or they can be done at mm-hmm. the same time and we can learn by doing. Um, where would people start? If they wanted to start their reading, are there texts that you'd recommend that you know, are not the size of a breeze block that people might find approachable? <laughs> um, well, you can get, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, Kropotkin's book Mutual Aid is, mm. is quite long. I mean, it's the yeah. last two chapters really that are the ones to read and that's freely yeah. available online. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's a very 19th century kind of argument. I mean, the other, um, I mean, the other one that I really like is Cindy Milstein's um, Anarchism and Its Aspirations. And that's short. Okay. It's very accessible. And she has this discussion of mutual aid where she she links it to what she calls the ethical compass. Um, and I think that's, uh, that speaks really nicely to the, to the uh, you know, the principles and the sentiments, if you like, of, of mutual aid, that it is this kind of thick relationship that people cultivate, but not necessarily a, um, not necessarily with a view to to, to living in, in sort of permanently in in uh, in community with each other, but actually to to uh, change the dynamics of the of the kind of the cities we live in and uh, the the detachments that that we we not only have but also sometimes kind of value. Uh, we don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to live in each other's pockets, but actually that doesn't mean to say that we can't practice mutual aid with each other. Yeah, I think that'd be that'd be a great um, great place for people to start. Um, if they want to read a tiny bio of Kropotkin, Dog Section Press has an excellent uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I, I'm a big fan of their great anarchist book. I think it's very approachable for. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. Like to they're also it. they're also available online. Yes, they are. And, yeah, yeah. And they're illustrated. Yeah, it's, they're, they're very beautifully illustrated. Um, it, yeah, it's been a good one for me to assign to students and have them approach anarchism from a non-prejudiced uh, perspective, I suppose, which is yeah. which can be hard. Like, I always remember coming to the US for the first time when I was twenty-one, and like, I don't think I presented in a way that was particularly affable to to um, the Transport Security Administration. But uh, I, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm a PhD student. What are you studying? Political violence and the anarchist unions. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was immediately sent to the little room that you go to. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had the, some more questions to answer. But I think it's it's really important to present anarchism, I think through the lens of, because I think so often it's viewed through the lens of like a predilection for chaos and violence, which yeah. is the opposite of what you're doing when you're, you know you're giving someone a blanket or something like it's yeah um and so i think if people listening will at least be familiar with the concept of anarchism and mutual aid and not see it in that prejudicial way but i think if we can present it to other people you know you're doing anarchism everyone was doing it at the start of the pandemic when they were sewing masks like you say or home yeah. brewing hand sanitizer 
yeah and i think that's i think that's really important actually to to the to the argument that that the um mutual aid is 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 for everyone so yeah. you know you're not anarchists are not trying to change people's heads or get them to think in particular ways when they talk about mutual aid uh what yeah. they're doing is is tapping into a propensity that exists within all of us and what anarchists are saying is that if you you know if you push uh organizations in particular directions then actually you've got a better way or a better means of uh, a better sort of environment within which you can sustain those uh those practices but, yeah. but mutual aid itself is is not about being an anarchist it's it's about being a human being yeah oh, yeah yeah i wonder so if people want to sort of build ways of taking care of each other without the state where they are they maybe they can see a problem right that hasn't been addressed by the state like one of those holes that you spoke about or a problem that the state is addressing uh, inadequately or in an undesirable way how would they go about like do you have advice for people looking to start it can be a especially if you're not on social media which i know we've had people mm -hmm. email about like i'm not on facebook or twitter and how do i organize mutual aid so do you have any suggestions for that yeah so i mean there are i mean there, there are normally sort of in in any i mean it, certainly where i live which is a small market town i mean there is a community center there are i mean mm -hmm. there are churches too but i mean there is a, a sort of a local civic center if you like which has all kinds of uh adverts for for local groups and activities there's a i mean we're a town of sanctuary so uh, mm -hmm. we're one of the places that migrants are, are sent to in order to to, to register Mm -hmm. um and the the people who are involved in the town of sanctuary they meet them greet them try and give them uh information that's useful to them they run mm -hmm. uh english language classes they try and get the kids into swimming pools i mean there are all sorts of thing activities that they're doing so yeah. i think it's a matter of sort of seeing what's there yeah uh and and then sort of try i mean often i think people don't realize the skills they have uh so for example yeah, yeah. you know if they speak more than one language uh, it's often really helpful uh, yeah. to to people who are arriving in a in a foreign land or a land that they don't they're not they're, they're not uh, speakers of the native language, you know, to help translate, uh, to to share information, just to point people in the direction where they can get help from from other agencies. So I don't think I mean it seems to me that you know mutual aid is not necessarily trying to sort of say um, you're not going to enable people to access support services yeah. that are provided i mean e even if they're paltry uh services yeah. provided by the state what you're trying to do is to to meet people's needs yes. uh and there yeah. are existing groups and associations which are which will enable you to do that i mean you could go if you live at the seaside you could go down to your local uh lifeboat association and see <laughs> if they need a volunteer to run the office you know uh, yeah. there are that the, these are the sorts of things things that keep these institutions running um that's the kind of thing that you can do yeah, I think that's a very good, uh, very good suggestion for people. And it just, we don't, we don't need to yet yeah, be like turn our noses up at support for the state where what little is available we should avail ourselves and other people who need it and all. empower other people to get to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and certainly we can't we can't act as if the state doesn't exist at a time when it does. No. And it's powerful and it can hurt vulnerable people. Mm. Yeah, I think this. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up on the topic of mutual aid? I think we've covered um yeah we i think we've we've sort of covered it i mean i i just i guess it's a you know mutual aid is a is the the important thing for me is that mutual mm -hmm. aid is a it's an easy thing and it's and it and yeah. it can build uh and and that's the the 
and it and it can be sustained. That's the joy of it, yes. and I think that's the the brilliant thing about the the example of the Lifeboat Association. Yeah, you know, we can set up all all kinds of things and run them. Um, mm-hmm. We don't need to be told to do it. We don't need to be told how to do it. Yeah, I remember one of the things that always gives me a little spark of joy for such a a, a venerable British institution with royal in its name is that they celebrate <laughs> they celebrate Kropotkin's birthday apparently. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Like certainly they'll post on all their social media like pictures of Kropotkin and like a little birthday cake and uh, like these celebrations, which uh, yeah I think people should you know take a little moment of joy to celebrate these things that we've already achieved and and I guess try and yeah. do better. Is there is there anywhere people um, can find you on the internet? I don't know if you have social media or website. I'm not on social media, but I I'm no. I'm in easily um, yeah you can find me at the university at Loughborough University. Mm. It's um, L O U G H. B O R O G H. Yeah. Um, it's one some and... of my colleagues have struggled with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the easiest place to find me. And, and my, my contact information is there. And if anyone wants to write to me, then I'm happy to write back. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.